Assalamu alaikum, everybody, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, we're delighted to speak to Brother Jake Brancatella. How are you, Akhi Jake? Good, alhamdulillah. Wa alaikum How are you doing? All good, alhamdulillah. Jake Brancatella is a convert to Islam, an independent researcher with a specific interest in Christian theology and philosophy. He holds a bachelor's degree in analytic philosophy and is an instructor at Sapiens Institute and Y Islam. He runs a YouTube channel called The Muslim Metaphysician and is also co-founder of the Thought Adventure podcast. I provided links to both channels uh, in the description box below. Jake is also a debater and typically has debates and discussions with Christian theologians on the highest level. Now, before Brother Jake presents, I would like to state that today's presentation will be somewhat dense in terms of information content. We will be exploring the logical coherence of the doctrine of the Trinity in a level of depth that most of us would likely not have been exposed to before. And I know this because I've been very closely following public religious debates and lectures on these issues for the past 17 years and have a good idea of the level of discourse out there. So we strongly advise that everyone pays careful attention to the presentation so that we follow along as Jake speaks. A second thing that I would like to say is that Jake isn't a mere armchair critic of the Trinity. He, he has actually tried and tested the very arguments that he'll be presenting to us today in public debates with prominent Christian theologians and academics. And mashallah, Brother Jake's performance in those debates speaks for itself for those who watch them. So we can take extra comfort knowing that what will be presented to us today has actually withstood rigorous scrutiny. So Brother Jake is not only bringing to the table um, information that he has merely read about, but his practical experience testing the utilization and conveyance of that information as well. So with that said and board in mind, uh, Jake, the, the floor uh, is all yours. All right. Thank you very much for that warm introduction. Uh, let's see here. All right, so um, I want to thank Blogging Theology for having me on today. Um, like uh, Brother Bassam said, it's going to be uh, a bit of a dense uh, presentation and a bit lengthy, uh, but I hope, inshallah ta'ala, that uh, the audience will gain something out of it. And um, yeah, so let's sort of just jump right into it. So the name of the presentation is called The Logical Problem of the Trinity, A Persistent Problem. And we'll see why I'm labeling it uh, a persistent problem is because of the fact that it's been around, um, in, in my estimation, from the fourth century and all the way up through today. So before I go into specific details, let me just give a brief outline of what this presentation is going to be about. So first... I'm going to go into a sort of historical introduction to the problem, explaining the origin of, of the problem and what the problem is, at least as represented in the fourth century. Then second, I'm going to go into con a contemporary representation of the problem, zooming forward all the way to the 20th and 21st century. Then third, I'm going to take a look at proposed solutions to this problem, and then last but not least, I'm going to look at objections to these solutions and inshallah show that all proposed solutions uh, don't actually work. They fail in some sort of way. Now, going into the first section here, which is a historical introduction to the problem, 
I expect that at least most of the listeners here will have some familiarity with early um, Christianity and early Trinitarian thought. So I'm taking some things for granted, but hopefully um, uh, the audience will be familiar with the, at least the very bare bone basics. So the beginning of the problem, in, in my estimation, is that you have full br- full blown Trinitarian doctrine really begins in the fourth century. Um, now maybe I can uh, support that claim in much more detail another time if if I'm <laughs> invited back on. Unfortunately, I can't do that now because time doesn't really allow. Um, uh, but we can see that in key councils like the Council of Nicaea and Constantinople, for example, in Council of Nicaea, as many would be familiar with, the son was declared homoousion with the uh, father. That means that they possessed the same nature. They were of the same substance. And uh, so the council was convened to basically vote on what the status of the son was. Was he uh, equal with the father? Did he have the same essence and nature as the father? And then at the second ecumenical council, uh, which was in 381 in Constantinople, the Holy Spirit was added as uh, being part of the Trinity. Now, my claim anyway is, and, and obviously this can be disputed, I'm sure that some Christians will dispute it, uh, that prior to the fourth century, especially in the first, second, and early third century, you didn't have full-blown Trinitarianism. Um, you had other uh, sort of, we can say, uh, beginning forms of Trinitarianism. You have people calling Jesus God, um, but they did not believe that he was co-equal and co-eternal uh, with the Father. And there's a progressive development that takes place in the first, second, and third centuries that leads up to what I'm calling this full-blown Trinitarianism. Um, so anyway... I I think some scholars say that binitarianism uh, preceded Trinitarianism and that, you know, maybe uh, the Father and and the Son were viewed as divine, but not the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's true. Um, And then there's going to be questions about uh, what exactly the sense of divinity that they were applying to the Son. And even there, I think there's going to be a development from people like Justin Martyr, who it's very clear in his works that he calls the Son God. Right. But he literally says that he's another God, which is numerically distinct from the father. And he does see that the father has a special status that the son doesn't have. And then you can, you know, see that development further, further on to the son um, gets a slightly higher status as time goes on. That's that's sort of what I'm assuming. It's not really necessarily germane um, to the problem that we're going to talk about here, because whenever Trinitarianism uh, you think it, it arose, uh, the problem was there. But I'm just assuming that it, it takes place in, in the late 3rd, um, early 4th century. Okay, so um, I just want to list off some key players that were involved in um, 4th century Trinitarianism because of the fact that I'm going to focus on one of them specifically, Gregory of Nyssa, and one of his works specifically to introduce what the problem is. So some key players were St. Athanasius. He died in the year 373 of the Common Era or the Christian Era. And um, he was extremely influential in propagating uh, Trinitarianism. He was uh, at the Council of Nicaea and really fought for Trinitarian doctrine subsequent to that. Then you have uh, figures like the Cappadocian uh, Fathers, which refer to the two Gregories, 
Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianzus, as well as uh, Basil. And um, they all were extremely influential in the development of, of, of Christian theology, specifically Trinitarianism and things like the Incarnation. Um, so they were extremely important. Then you have St. Hilary in the West, um, another one who is especially uh, very important for the Western Church, uh, especially the Catholics. And then again, St. Augustine, who, you know, was a giant, I'm sure that the audience would be familiar with. I just want to list off some of these names so that the audience knows some of the key players involved. But I'm going to specifically focus on one of the Cappadocian um, fathers, which is Gregory of Nyssa. Now, what is my claim that the source of the problem actually is? Well, my claim is that the source of the problem is the doctrine of the Trinity itself. Now, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, basically the doctrine of the Trinity, or the claim is that there is uh, one being uh, that exists amongst three co-equal, co-eternal persons, and that they share the same nature and essence. They're of one substance. Um, and obviously Christians claim that there's only one God. So it's basically the idea that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of them are God, they're individual persons, and there's only one God. Now I can go into much more detail about um, some of the nuances in Trinitarian doctrine, but we're going to save that for, for later on, inshallah. Now, my claim is that the bare bones of Trinitarianism and what it teaches is enough for, for the problem to um, exist. And that this is something that I really want to stress on. This is not a modern problem, and hence why I'm going to the fourth century to show that the problem existed at least uh, ever since um, Trinitarianism existed. Now, why is this important? Because sometimes in these discussions, and maybe rightly so, sometimes anyway, um, there may be bias involved and some people think, well, this is just a critique initiated by Muslims or maybe more broadly skeptics, those who are not Christians, those who don't believe in Trinitarianism. And, and because of that, well, there's either misrepresentation of what the doctrine actually teaches, and that's why the problem is existing, or maybe Muslims and skeptics just have it out for Christianity, and so they're concocting this problem. But I want to stress that this is not only a, not a modern problem, that the, the problem did not initiate from skeptics. It wasn't people who were saying, oh, hey, look, um, you guys believe in three gods and you, you Christians have this problem. No, Christians themselves who believed in the Trinity saw this problem, recognized it, and at least attempted to their best ability uh, to deal with the problem. So uh, I'm going to try to support that claim and show that the problem is represented in some of the earliest Trinitarian sources. And again, the one that I'm going to focus on is Gregory of Nyssa's work, which is called On Not Three Gods. Now, not only that, um, I'm going to show much later on that the problem still exists today and is discussed in contemporary Christian literature. So let's yeah, sort of I mean, jump. I want, uh, yeah, I, I just want to stress that, that that's actually extremely important because, you know, it's, it's very, very often that, you know, in our discussions with, you know, fellow, you know, with, with, with Christians, that they always mm -hmm. come, come across as saying that, you know, it's, it's the Muslim mind that struggles with the Trinity. It's, it's the Muslim that subjects God to his reason and is mm -hmm. incapable of grasping the Trinity or, 
or you know and 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 you know as you're clearly highlighting here it's that you know the, the problem itself was raised by christians who were sympathetic to the doctrine itself right, right? and so it, it's not fair to kind of portray this as some kind of muslim ra muslim rational problem uh right. so to speak yeah yeah right right it's not like some um you know, may I say, <laughs> Muslim conspiracy theory that's mm. sort of like concocted against uh, Christianity. Problem exists, uh, you know, and it was um, Christians themselves, as you said, that were Trinitarians, that were sympathetic to the doctrine, but they're saying, well, look, it looks like a problem. What, what should we do now? And, and I'm saying now, even today, the problem is, for the most part, discussed amongst Trinitarians, and they're sort of hashing it out amongst themselves. It's not really... Muslims that are uh, writing on this subject in terms of in the academic literature saying, hey, you know, you've got this serious problem. No, the Christians are um, writing about it and they're discussing it in um, books like this, for example, uh, philosophical uh, and theological essays on the Trinity. I mean, on the very first page, which I'm going to go to in, in a few moments, uh, the problem is discussed and all throughout it is Christians who are dealing with the problem. So this is something that we want to make very clear, uh, inshallah, so that the viewers, um, uh, both Muslims and otherwise, you know, the Christians as well, don't see this as um, uh, us having malicious intent by trying to, you know, put this problem forward. It, it's nothing like that. So um, let, let's go right into it with uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, who died in the year uh, around the year 395. And this comes from his work, which is literally called On Not Three Gods. Alternatively, uh, it's it's sometimes known as the letter to Ablabius. And that's because um, Gregory, who, as I said, was, I mean, we have to understand the context of this person. That's why I went into it a little bit earlier. Amongst the major Christian sects, if we can say that, uh, the Catholics, the Orthodox, and the Protestants, Nobody disputes Gregory of Nyssa. I mean, he's uh, considered a saint. He's considered a, um, a theologian in the church. Uh, nobody disputes his orthodoxy. Okay, and that's why, one of the reasons why I focused on him is because he's not really a controversial figure in that sense. I mean, he was extremely influential in propagating uh, Trinitarianism. Okay, so um, he receives a letter in the fourth century. Uh, from a bishop named Ablabius. And Ablabius, as we'll see, uh, well, this letter is actually a response to the letter he received from Ablabius. And Ablabius is basically asking about this problem, right? And we'll see now exactly what this problem is. But as you can see from the title, On Not Three Gods, it's basically the problem of tritheism. If we Christians believe in the trin Trinity, how is, it, how is it that we forbid people to say that there are three gods? It looks like there's three gods. So here's a quote from that letter in uh, which Gregory is writing back to Ablabius now. And he responds and says this, In truth, the question you propound to us is no small one, nor such that but small harm will follow, it, uh, will follow if it meets with insufficient treatment. So notice he's starting off by saying, Listen, uh, the, the question which you're asking me is a, is a serious question. It's not a small question, right? And if we don't deal with this question sufficiently, it's not just small harm will come from this. Great harm will come from this. 
Yeah, it's, not, it's on, not a it's not a peripheral doctrine, right? Like it, right. It's, this is central to the Christian faith. Exactly that right. And notice, and this is something very important, and and it goes in line with what I said. This is not like a Muslim problem being raised. Notice that Gregory of Nyssa doesn't turn around and say, "Well, listen, Ablabius, don't you don't you have faith, right? Don't you have the Holy Spirit working within you? What are you talking about? This question is is foolishness, you know." No, there's nothing like that going on. He says, listen, brother, this is a serious question. We have to deal with it. Otherwise, it could cause a big problem, right? So this is and, something and very not, important not, to know. It's not a, and it's not a question by a layman either. It's right. a question by a bishop, right? So these are supposed to be the, you know, the learned of, right. of, you know, of, of Christendom, and they're struggling with their central doctrine, not a peripheral one. So right, right. this is quite, yeah, it's quite something. Exactly. So he says, for by the force of the question, and now, so this is, at least in Gregory of Nyssa's mind, he's now going to explain to you what he thinks the problem is. So he says, for, the, for by the force of the question, we are at first sight compelled to accept one or other of two erroneous options. So the way he sets it up, he's saying, the question or the problem seems to be this. At first glance, we only have two options. And now he's going to show you that what the two options are and how both of them are seriously problematic. He says, and, I, and, and those two, op, two erroneous options are either to say there are three gods, which is unlawful or haram. It's, it's prohibited to say for Christians that there are three gods because at least on the face of it, they want to say that there's only one God or not to acknowledge the Godhead of the Son and the Holy Spirit which is impious and absurd, meaning to say that we believe in the Trinity. So to reject the Godhead of the Son and the Holy Spirit is impious and absurd. We're going against Christian doctrine. Presumably, they believe it's found in scripture and tradition, right? So it would be impious and absurd to now reject the, uh, the Trinity and that the Son and the Holy Spirit are God. But something very important to note, notice he doesn't include the Father in that. He doesn't say not to acknowledge the Godhead of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And why? Because even Jews and, uh, to, a, to a certain extent, uh, Muslims are going to accept the idea that, uh, of God, the, the, the Father, right? Um, so he, he's not trying to get rid of the Father from the equation. He's saying it would be to remove the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? Because everybody's already assuming, okay, the Father's God. There's no problem with that. Now, what actually is the dilemma or the uh, dichotomy here? It's saying, basically, if you believe in the Trinity, it seems like there's three gods. And we can't say that because we're claiming to be monotheists. On the other hand, the only other option is to deny that the Son and the Holy Spirit are divine. And we can't do that because we're Trinitarians, right? Oh, so, so stuck between a rock and a hard place, pretty much. Right. So, so, so those are the two options. And, and, and as I'm saying, and I keep want to stress on this, this is a, a bishop who's writing to Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory of Nyssa is responding, and this is how he's setting up the problem, right? Because many times Muslims and even the Quran uh, get accused of misrepresenting the Trinity and saying, hey, you guys are accusing us of being polytheists. You guys are misrepresenting what we believe, right? But we're seeing here, even before the um, advent of the Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam, and uh, the Quran, this objection was around. I mean, we, we see this clearly here. The dichotomy is, hey, look, 
if you believe in a trinity, it looks like there's three gods, or you're going to have to deny the trinity. Okay, so that's that's what uh, Gregory is saying. I just want to reiterate Gregory's reaction to the problem. Gregory does not question Ablabius's faith. He does not say, hey, Ablabius, don't you know this? What are you talking about here? No, he doesn't do that at all. He actually encourages Ablabius, and this is in another section, which we didn't read from, but just under that paragraph, he actually encourages Ablabius for fighting against enemies of the truth. He appreciates Ablabius's uh, asking for help on this question. He says, look, I appreciate you, you know, contacting me and asking for help on this question. He admits, as I said, that the question is not a small matter. Why? Because it's at the very heart of Christianity, and it is a serious problem. He then says that major harm will come without sufficient treatment of the question. So he says, look, we can't just sweep it under the carpet. This is something serious. If we just sweep it under the carpet, it's going to have a, 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 a it's going to be a major harm, right? And then he forms a dilemma and says, either there are three gods or the Trinity is false. That's the most simple way of explaining what the dilemma is supposed to be. So Gregory then goes on further to outline what the argument is, and he gives an analogy as to how you could um, conceptualize what the argument is supposed to be. So in that same work, he says, and I quote, the argument which you state is something like this. Peter, James, and John, being in one human nature, are called three men. Well, that seems obvious, right? No problem with that. You have Peter, James, and John. We have three men. And he says, and there is no absurdity in describing those who are united in nature, meaning Peter, James, and John presumably all have uh, the same human nature. They're all a part of humanity, right? There's no absurdity in describing those who are united in nature, meaning having the same human nature, if they are more than one by the plural number of the name derived from their nature. Now, that might sound confusing, but it's very simple. All he's saying is, in the case of Peter, James, and John, even if they have the same human nature or are united in humanity, if they are more than one, there's no harm in us calling them by the plural number of them, meaning Peter, James, and John, we call them three men. Okay, that is a standard way of speaking. Yeah, he so says, we, 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 wouldn't, we wouldn't say they are three men. Peter, James, and John are mm -hmm. three men sharing one human nature. We would say they are three human beings, right? Yeah, right. yeah they're three. They're, they're would, three. Uh, pretty much describe them. <laughs> right, yeah, they're three human beings. Yeah, exactly. And then he says, if then, in the above case, custom admits this, meaning if it, this is the way that we normally speak, and there's no problem with this whatsoever, right? Then he says, and no one forbids us to speak of those who are two as two. So like me and, and, and brother uh, Bassam here, there's nothing uh, that is forbidding us to say there are actually two human beings here. That's how we normally speak. In fact, if there were only one human being here, <laughs> and it were me, it'd probably be a problem on my side to think, well, I'm actually the only person on or a human being on the stream, that would be deeply problematic. I'd probably need to be somewhere else. Um, so, and then he goes on to say, or those who are more than two as three. So in other words, the way in which you're counting um, human beings 
is not by, oh, just saying that they ha- share one human nature and then you have all of these um, individual um, persons. No, you count them by the number of individuals that they are, Peter, James, and John, right? So the, we would count them as three human beings. He says, or those who are more than two as three. Then he goes on to say, how is it then, or how is it that in the case of our understanding of the mysteries of the faith, and he's talking about the Trinity there, though confessing the three persons, so we confess that the three persons are God, and acknowledging no difference of nature between them, meaning supposedly they have the same nature, we are in some sense at variance with our confession. In other words, what he's saying is that if in the original, like, worldly case, we would just say, hey, Peter, James, and John are three men, they're three human beings, well, then when we say we have three persons with the same nature, seem like we would have to say that there are three gods. And he winds up saying this. He says, we are in some sense at variance with our confession. When we say that the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost is one. Well, seems like, how can we say that they're actually one when in the other case, we say that there's three, there's three of them, and yet forbid men to say that there are three gods. How can we forbid men to say three gods when in the case of the human beings, of course, everybody says there are three human beings there, right? Yeah, so in the yeah, case exactly. of... So, you know, exactly. We, we, we don't say that Sam and Jake are two persons, but they are one human being, right? Right, exactly. So <laughs> just because, okay, human is a single essence, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't describe ourselves as human beings. So, yeah, it, it, I mean, seems like uh, Gregory is, uh, you know, um, he's tracking the problem. He's he's he's, he's, problem. he's 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 setting up the problem and he, he's very clearly explaining what it's supposed to be. Right. So he's, he's demonstrating that it's quite arbitrary for us to mm-hmm. articulate ourselves um, differently when we're talking about the Trinity. Right. He says, how can we forbid, how can we make it haram or prohibited for men to say that there are three gods, right? How can we do that? He's saying it seems inconsistent, right? Because then in the case of the human beings, we should say, we should make it prohibited for them to say that there are three human beings. But that just seems silly, right? So um, so then he says, uh, to cap it off, the question is, so that he, that was his explanation of the problem. Then he says, the question is, as I said, referring back to that previous statement, which we read, very difficult to deal with. So now he explains the problem, sets it up and says that it's very difficult to deal with, right? Which I agree, it is extremely difficult to deal with. But the point, again, is to stress that this is a Christian who is a a bishop in the church speaking to another authority in the church, Gregory of Nyssa, and he's not saying, hey, look, there's no problem. What are you talking about here, brother? He's saying this is a serious problem that is very difficult to deal with. So many times, and you know, I'm not trying to complain about it, but sometimes when I present this problem to uh, Christians, they just say, well, you don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity, brother. You need to have faith. You need to have the Holy Spirit. Gregory's not saying that at all. Okay, he is actually explaining the same pro- the problem in a similar way that a Muslim would. And he's saying it's very difficult to deal with because sometimes yeah, and, he's, and he's saying this yeah. more than 300 years after, uh, you know, uh, after the coming of Christ. So it's like right. they've had 300 years to deal with this. And, you know, apparently they still didn't by that time. 
Right. And that's why I said it's really inconsequential to when you think the Trinity originated, right? Because even if you said, for the sake of argument, it was in the first century, let's just say for the sake of argument, well, over 300 years later, in the fourth century, Gregory is still dealing with this problem, right? So, so, so that's the point. And that's why I said, you know, there's not, nothing really hinges on my claim that the Trinity actually developed later on. It's not really, um, it's not really relevant to um, the argument itself and whether or not it goes through. So, um, so yeah, he says, and, and I want to talk about Gregory's clearly struggling with the problem because he's saying, look, if we have three individuals that possess the same human nature, Peter, James, and John, we normally would count them as three men or three human beings. And so he says, it seems like we are inconsistent in counting gods because we should count them as three gods. But yet we forbid men to say that there are three gods. And then, as I said, he admits that it is a very difficult question. Now, this last bullet point here, I don't include it from Gregory just in the interest of time, but Gregory, surprisingly enough, do you know what he does? Instead of saying, well, yeah, we're actually counting inconsistently. So in the case of counting gods, we should just count and admit that there are three gods. He does the opposite and says, no, instead of counting and saying that there are three human beings, we should say that there's literally and strictly speaking, only one human being. Peter, James, and John are only actually one man. Now, wow. we're but sitting that, here. That, that, that means... I mean, that could extend to saying there's actually 8 billion. I, I think we passed the 8 billion mark a few days ago, world population. Mm -hmm. So there's 8 billion. Yeah. So it's like, what, 8 billion persons on earth, but one human being. Pretty yeah. Much. Well, only one man. And then if, 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 if we were to say that, um, I don't know, blogging theology might get shut down. <laughs> People be looking at us like, what's going on here? So, yeah, so the, the I mean, interesting thing. The intellectual price tag resorting to this counterintuitive escape route just to cling on to the Trinity. Yeah, because you would think, look, he's clearly, he has enough honesty to point out, okay, here's the problem. Here's where it looks like we're being inconsistent. Now, in order to make himself consistent, Instead of admitting there's three gods, he said there's only one man I'm sitting there saying, well, I think you you went the wrong way, uh, but um, we'll see in due time, inshallah. So um, now this isn't just my reading of, of what I just said there, because people might say, well, brother Jake, maybe you're misrepresenting Gregory. Does he really go on to say there's only one man? Come on. What, what? And I'm saying, no, it's not just my reading. So now zooming forward to the modern discussion of the problem. That was just a brief introduction to the, where the problem, we can see it very clearly in fourth century, uh, century um, Trinitarian works, them explaining what the problem is. And to be fair, Gregory then goes on after that to attempt to deal with the problem. Now, I don't think he's successful in doing that, but that's a whole other story, okay? Um, now, Richard Cartwright, this is, I think, in the 1980s, he wrote a very influential paper, which is called On the Logical Problem of the Trinity. So uh, this is, is zooming. Is he, a, is he an academic or is he a... Yeah, he's an academic. Hmm. Yeah, he's an academic. And um, unfortunately, I can't go through all of the history in between the 4th century and the 20th century. So I have to kind of zoom forward in the interest yeah, of time. But what I'm, my claim is, and what's clearly going to be demonstrated, is the problem still persists after Gregory, right? 
even if you think he solved it, many people didn't think he did because many people were giving various different answers all throughout the centuries afterward, all the way up until now, till when Richard Cartwright is writing this paper, I think in the uh, 1980s, and it's literally called On the Logical Problem of the Trinity, okay? Um, and so, but he's harks back to what we just read from Gregory of Nyssa. And he says this, and I quote, it seems to have been left to Gregory of Nyssa, Basil's younger brother, to notice that thus understood consubstantiality of the father. And in that context, consubstantiality just means um, that the father, son, and Holy Spirit are of the same substance. They have the same substance or the same nature. Okay. So thus understood consubstantiality of the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit appears to license saying that there are three gods. So notice he's, he's interpreting the text in the same way that we did, that it appears that Gregory is saying, if you believe in the Trinity, it appears to license saying that there are three gods. Now, how does he interpret Gregory's response to that, which I just alluded to in the previous slide? He says, Gregory himself rather desperately suggested that strictly speaking, there is only one man. So again, it wasn't just my representation of the text. This is an academic uh, reading that same source and noticing that Gregory is setting up the problem as saying, well, it looks like if we affirm the Trinity, it licensed people to say that there are three gods. Gregory, and these are his words, his, his desperate, desperately suggested that strictly speaking, there's only one man. So in order to be consistent, instead of Gregory admitting that there are three gods, he flips it and says there's only one man. Okay, so I wanted to put that forward because I wanted to show that this is a secondary source reading that material and coming to the same conclusion that I am. Again, um, I'm not trying to um, attack uh, the Christian doctrine when I, you know, just in a conspiratorial fashion. Okay, so uh, Cartwright is is coming to that same conclusion now. In the same paper, um, Cartwright sets forward a modern formulation of what the problem is. So it's still the problem of tritheism, but he just puts it in the form of an argument, a formalized argument. So <clears throat> what is the uh, Cartwright's formulation and the problem according to him? So it arises from affirming these seven premises or these seven statements. So it goes like this. Premise one, the father is God. Well, that's not controversial. Christians believe in that, right? Premise two, the son is God. Same thing. Premise three, the Holy Spirit is God. Same thing. No problem there. Premise four, the father is not the son. No problem there, unless you want to take a, a modalist view and say that the father and the son are the same uh, person. But Orthodox uh, Trinitarianism rejects that, right? So no problem there from an Orthodox standpoint. Premise five, the father is not the son. Premise six, the son is not the Holy Spirit. And premise seven, there is exactly one God. Now, all seven premises, I want people to pause and see, do, do Christians affirm all seven of those statements? Orthodox Trinitarian uh, Christians, do they affirm all seven of those statements? Well, of course they do. They all believe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not each other, meaning they're different persons. And premise seven, they claim that there's exactly one God, so they claim to be monotheists. Now, what exactly is the problem? What's well, the same problem that we went over before, which is tritheism? Now, let me explain it here um, on this next slide. What exactly is the problem? 
Well, the problem is, is that these seven premises form what's called an inconsistent scent, meaning to say that if all seven of these statements are true, there's some kind of inconsistency or contradiction, right? And I'm going to explain exactly what the, what that contradiction is. In other words, in order to make the set consistent, you're going to wind up having to actually deny one or more of those seven statements. You cannot affirm all seven of them simultaneously. That's the claim. Now, as I said, the problem is basically tritheism or there being three gods. If the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each god, and they are not the same as each other, right? Meaning they're distinct, they're indi distinct individuals. It follows then that there are three gods, not one god. In other words, and, and putting it in the context of the actual argument, if uh, P1 to P6 entails that there are three gods, see, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God, they're not each other. If you affirm P1 to P6, what you should be saying in P7 is there is exactly or there are exactly three gods, not one God. However, in P7, there's a claim that there's only one God. So the inconsistency is that from premise one to premise six, it entails that there are three gods, but yet in premise seven, we're being told that there's only one God. So the contradiction is affirming both three gods and one God at the same time. Now, obviously, Christians are going to want to turn it around and say, well, look, we only believe in one God. We understand that. That's part of the package that actually derives the contradiction. But the contradiction is you claim that you believe in one God, but the other six premises which you affirm seem to entail that there are actually three gods. And that's where the contradiction is. And this is just a modern formulation of the problem, but really it's the same problem exactly of what Gregory of Nyssa was saying earlier on all the way back in the fourth century. So um, I just want to be clear, maybe uh, Brother Bassam, I, I don't know if there's anything you want me to clarify on that. Um, no, I, I want to do my... No, 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 okay. Yeah. Okay. So now I hinted at this book earlier. Um, and again, I just want to point out that this book is all of the authors in it, as far as I know anyway, are actually Trinitarian Christians. Um, William Lane Craig is in there. Um, uh, Richard Swinburne. So uh, a lot of big names that, that some of the audience would be familiar with. And on the very first page, this is what they say, McCall and uh, Michael Ray, uh, they write an introduction to the text where they're basically explaining what the supposed problem is. And then in subsequent chapters, different philosoph Christian philosophers and theologians attempt to respond to this problem, right? So I want to make it clear, basically everyone is agreeing at this point what Jake is saying. It sure looks like a problem. And then Christian theologians and philosophers try to respond to the problem later on. But in the very first page of the introduction, it says this, and I quote, what theologians sometimes refer to as the threeness oneness problem of the Trinity and what philosophers call the logical problem of the Trinity is well known. In other words, this isn't some like, like what we discussed here from Cartwright, this isn't some fringe guy that is, you know, coming up with this. This is well known. It arises from the conjunction of three central tenets of the doctrine. So here he just restates it a, di a slightly different way, but it's basically the same thing. There's exactly one God. Remember, that was premise seven. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not identical. That's just premises four to six uh, included in one, basically saying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not the same uh, 
same beam. Um, and then premise uh, three is are not, the same, are not the same persons. Yeah, not the same person. Sorry, they're not the same person. Father, we'll son, correct and, you on the same being part. <laughs> yeah, they're not the same person. Whether or not they're the same being is is actually yeah. yeah we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, sorry, so I misspoke there. Uh, Father, son, and Holy Spirit are consubstantial, meaning they're of the same substance, right? Which is just a, the earlier claim in premises one to three, basically of the other formulation that each one of them are God or divine, right? So it's just a slightly different way of saying it. And then he says. The logical problem is that the conjunction of T1 to T3, or those three statements, appears to be flatly inconsistent. In other words, it seems to form an inconsistent set in the same way that um, um, this formulation, Cartwright's formulation, did. Okay? So, what does contemporary Christian scholarship have to say about this problem? And what actually is the project that they're involved in? Well, as I said earlier and hinted at earlier, Christian philosophers and theologians treat the LPT. So what I was just talking about, the logical problem of the Trinity, I may refer to it um, in subsequent parts of the conversation or presentation, uh, just shorthand as the LPT. So they treat the LPT or the logical problem of the Trinity as a problem that requires a solution. Okay, so it's a serious I just want, problem. I want to re-stress the point that you already made in the yeah. previous slide, which is that scholars and philosophers like Richard Swinburne and, and William Lane Craig are not liberals, right? Mm -hmm. They are conservative Christians mm -hmm. who are very passionate about defending Christian doctrines, right? So that's right. something for uh, very important for our listeners to remember, that we're not appealing to, you know, uh, Christian modernists or liberals here, right, who are coming and saying, oh, you know, this is a problem and mm -hmm. we should ignore what, you know, fundamentalist Christians have said about, it. no, these are fundamentalists per se, and they are mm -hmm. admitting that there is a problem. So, yeah, please. Yeah, please, and, and also, listeners about this. and also they're not just like um, Christians that are not modernist and they're, you know, they're trying to be faithful to um, the teachings. It's not only that, it's that it's not like William, your next door neighbor, or Richard, your next door neighbor. Like Richard Swinburne is one of the, you know, even from a Muslim perspective, we have to give credit where credit is due. He's one of the greatest uh, Christian philosophers of the past 50 years. Um, so it's not Richard, you know, your neighbor or uh, guy yeah, from down the block. These are the intellectual heavyweights of, of Christendom. Absolutely. Right, right, right. So we're trying to deal with and what we're going to try to do in the rest of the presentation is deal with the best possible that the other side has to offer and then attempt to uh, show why we think the explanations don't actually work. Now, um, so contemporary Christian scholarship, um, these philosophers and theologians, they treat the LPT as a problem that requires a solution. Um also, something important to note is that because they're not modernist and they're not just like um, the, these complete postmodernists, post even, uh, they take scripture and tradition seriously and they use scripture and tradition to limit possible solutions. So, like, you can't just come up with your own random wacky ideas that don't at least attempt to have some grounding in the scripture and tradition. Scripture and tradition are used as sort of guidelines in order to. Um, guide the Christian theologians uh, attempt at constructing a possible solution to the problem. Yeah. It's, it's, it sets okay. boundaries for them that they can't. Yeah. Oh. Right. 
Exactly. And um, one of the boundaries that it sets is that uh, Arianism and modalism are considered formal heresies, right? So something I want to be very clear on, although the LPT is a, is a logical problem very clearly, you can avoid the logical problem by taking a heretical position. In other words, Arianism, which was an early heresy, and we're not going to go into too much detail because most people are familiar with Arianism and modalism. Basically, Arianism denied that the uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all uh, co-equal and co-eternal, right? Uh, they did not believe that the Son was necessarily of the exact same substance and essence as the uh, Father. So, of course, you can avoid the three God problem if you basically say, well, Jesus is not really God, or at least not God in the same sense as the Father, right? Likewise, uh, modalism is basically the view that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not really different persons. They're just different names that refer to the same person, right? So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just three names that refer to the one uh, to, to, to the one and the same person. And so their way of getting out of that problem is to deny um, these premises, four, five, and six, when it says the Father is not the Son, they're going to deny that. They're going to say, well, yeah, the Father actually is the Son. They're just two names that refer to the same person. So the point is, you can get out of the logical problem only if you take a heretical position, which would entail denying one or more of the premises that is actually used to derive the logical problem to begin with. Okay. But at the end of the day, in the end of the day, it's not the Trinity anymore. Yeah. Right. So it's not I mean, it, it, yeah. like, like, you know, it, it's not like they've actually come up with a heretical solution to evade the problem of the Trinity. It's just that they stopped believing in the Trinity. So to yeah. Speak. Yeah. You're no longer talking about Trinitarianism at that point. So it's not really a solution to the problem in the sense that you can solve it and you're still affirming the Trinity. No, exactly. you're, you've affirming, you've, you've quote unquote solved the problem at the expense of now denying the Trinity. That's, exactly. that's basically what you've done. Okay. So, and then um, lastly, um, in books like this text, and there, there are others, I'm just, you know, grabbing this as an illustration. Um, you see that not only do Christian theologians attempt to respond to the problem and construct their own model or explanation of how they think that you can affirm the Trinity without this um, uh, logical problem or avoiding this logical problem. They also interact with other um, philosopher and theologians views. So like Richard Swinburne and William Lane Craig will interact with each other's view and say, hey, um, here's a criticism here of why I think your, your view is problematic and vice versa, right? So there's a lot of interaction between the academics and scholars on this issue criticizing each other's models to the point that if one model is true, not always the case, but sometimes if one model is true, the other one is necessarily false, meaning they're, they're mutually exclusive from one another. So like if William Lane Craig's view is true, then Bo Branson's view definitely can't be true because they're, uh, they're mutually exclusive in that way. So that's something important to note that um, it's not just, each one of I mean, them is putting but, but forward. Just to, just to be fair to the other side, uh, I, I yes. guess what Branson and William Lane Craig will tell you, would tell you, is that, look, we're not actually trying to present what is the true model, but yeah. just a possible model, 
right? Correct. Yeah. So yeah. At just... the end of the day, if they're if 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 they are poking holes in each other's models, and neither of the models are are uh, you know one hundred percent evading all the objections to them, then you know they're they're pretty much eliminating each other in these intra-Christian discussions. Yeah, and that's pretty much what they do, and we'll see that in just a second here. Okay, sorry about that. I just want um, uh, to take a sip of water. So, okay, so that's um, important. Now, what I want to move on to here is a taxonomy of possible solutions to the problem. And what I mean by uh, taxonomy is just a categorization of different views, right, uh, because we have all different models, and what we're trying to do is categorize them into into sort of families, and to where we can pick them out and say, oh, it's a part of this category of solutions or this family of solutions, and that way it'll save us time in the long run. Because unfortunately, if I were here all day to refute um, or show problems with each single individual model, uh, we'd be here all day. There's just so many different um, models, but. There are some commonalities between the different specific um, iterations of these solutions such that you can categorize them neatly into a couple of families. Okay, so that's what um, I'm going to try to do here. And I'm going to use uh, Bo Branson's work, um, who I've actually uh, had a couple debates with. Uh, and one of them on this. Can you tell us who, who Branson is? Is he, is he an academic or? Yeah. Yeah, so Bo Branson, he, he, he's an academic. He's done uh, a PhD at Notre Dame uh, on the logical problem of the Trinity. So he's worked on it, what, maybe six to eight years um, on this problem. And his PhD thesis is literally called the logical problem of the Trinity, right? So that's showing you um, this is not just a, a title that we're giving to the problem. This is a title that um, Branson himself is, is using his PhD thesis has a title, and he is a Trinitarian Christian, right? So he's a very serious um, academic, and um, he sets out the problem and attempts to respond to it in that. Uh, but I'm utilizing his work here because he has a neat way of trying to categorize the different uh, possible solutions to the problem, okay? So in that uh, thesis, he says, quote, so... If the Orthodox Trinitarian wants to give an answer to the LPT that is both A, non-heretical, and B, a solution to the LPT, it must fall into either of these two. And then he's going on to say, so I just want to reiterate what I said before. If you're an Orthodox Trinitarian and you want to give a solution to the LPT, you're not want to, going to want to give a heretical view because then you're not really talking about a, a solution because it's you're not talking about the Trinity anymore. B, you also want to actually give a solution to the LPT. You're not going to just want to say, well, yeah, it's contradictory, and so what? So he's saying um, he's, he's sort of Xing out both of those options there. And so what he goes on to now say is that any non-heretical solution to the LPT is going to fall into one or two of these broad families, okay? The first one is called what he calls the equivocation family. And what he means by that is it's a family which equivocates on, quote unquote, is God between premises seven and P1 through P3. Now, I'm just going to go back to the other slide so people can understand what that means. 
What he's saying there is, and, and let me just say something briefly about e the word equivocation, actually. What he means by equivocate is that you can use the same word, right, in a sentence, and it can have two completely different meanings, right? So, for example, in English, we have the word bank. Now, I can say, oh, Brother Basam, I'm going to the bank, right? And that can have two possible meanings, or at least two possible meanings. It could mean that I'm going to the bank, which is a financial institution. Everybody knows what it is, where you, um, you know, store money or take out money, all that kind of stuff. So it could mean that I'm going to a financial institution. However, the word bank can also be used to mean, well, I'm going to the river bank, right? I'm going down to the bank to go fishing, maybe, or something of that sort. So what we mean by equivocate or equivocation is that the same word bank is being used in these sentences here, right? But it has two completely different meanings. It doesn't have the same meaning, okay? Now, in the case here, what he's saying, uh, the person who falls onto the first category or the equivocation family is equivocating on is God here between premises one, two, and three. It has one particular meaning and premise seven when it comes down to here when they say that there's one God. So the meaning of God here in premise seven is different than the meaning of God in premises one to three. Now, I'm going to go into a lot more detail about exactly what they're equivocating on in a second, but I don't want to do that at this point sure. because we're going to go into a lot of detail on that. But that's just the idea of what the the solution is supposed to be, that they equivocate. The possible route that one could take to solve yeah. this problem. Yeah, exactly. Um, is that they're going to equivocate on the meaning of God in premise seven versus how it's understood in the first three statements. Now, the second option is um, what he calls the NCIC family. And that means non-classical identity counting family, which just means, I know it sounds like a mouthful, but what just means that you're going to count by a relation other than classical identity. Excuse me. And we're going to talk a lot about what classical identity actually is and everything like that. But if you go back to the original example, right, of Gregory of Nyssa, typically the way that we count is, well, we have Peter, James, and John. Each one of them is a human being. They're not identical to each other, which just means they're not the same individual. There's something about Peter that is different than uh, James and John, right? They all have something about them which is different such that we could say, well, that's Peter, and that's John, and that's James, right? And if that's the case, typically we count and we say, well, then we have three humans, Peter, James, and John. We count them as three. So what the second solution is saying in one way or another, no, 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 that's wrong. You should count them as one, right? In some way, although typically we would count by identity by saying that if you have these three beings, Peter, James, and John, right, we count them as three because... There's something different about them from one another, such that there actually are three humans there. They're saying that that's wrong in, in the story of counting gods in the Trinity. We're going to count by some other relation, right? And then there's going to be some specificity about what exactly that, um, 
relation is other than identity. And we'll go into a lot of detail, inshallah, about that in, um, you know, later on when we get to those models. So, so basically that's an exceptional counting method when it comes to the Trinity. Yeah, just going to say, look, you guys are counting wrong. The way in which you were taught how to count, and I don't mean this to be provocative, but I'm just to put it forward. The way in which you were taught how to count in elementary school and the way in which we normally count, something is going wrong. With the Trinity, we have to count differently, right? Um, so, you know, the, the sort of trope um, that is put forward by Muslims sometimes, which is criticized, is this idea of one plus one plus one equals one. And that's what Christians are saying. And Muslims want to say one plus one plus one equals three. That's actually very accurate in terms of tracking what the problem is, because we'll actually see later on that the second solution falls into that of saying, no, you're actually counting wrong. It's, it, it's not that way. Um, so it's not really a trivial um, trope that is being put forward. Okay. So um, what Branson is saying is either any possible solution you're going to come up with that is orthodox is going to one way or another fall into one of these two families, right? Well, basically, now you can have so Branson has pretty much surveyed the Christian literature from the fourth century up till his time and saw all mm -hmm. the different models out there. And he believes that the only two plausible routes are these mm -hmm. two pretty much. Right. Right. Exactly. He's, he's saying one way or another, they're going to be reduced uh, to trying to do something like what is going on here. Right. Okay. So, um, and then Dale Tuggy, um, who is a, a Christian, but he's not a Trinitarian. He's a Unitarian. Um, he explains what I just read, that same passage. And he says he, referring to Branson, argues that all possible non-heretical solutions to that problem, meaning the LPT, either equivocate on the predicate, quote unquote, is God, roughly what are called social theories, which he discussed in, in a, a part of the, in another part of the section of this article, 2.2 to 7, or insist that the divine persons must be counted by some relation other than absolute or classical identity. And he says that can be referred to as relative identity theories, which are discussed in section 2.1. So we have... Uh, well, basically, he's basically, he is saying that what Branson described as the equivocation theories are also known as the social theories. It's just another correct. name. Yeah, they're social Trinitarian theories, correct. And then what he calls um, the NCIC family or counting by a relation other than classical identity, that's going to be known as in the literature as relative identity theories. So as we'll see later on, I mainly call it as such because that's really what they're referred to in the literature, social Trinitarianism and relative identity Trinitarianism. So we'll take a, a look at those two later on and see exactly a bit more detail what they're trying to do and then, um, uh, you know, obviously critique them. So the, so the labels that Branson used, are, are they unique to him or are they also equally used in the literature? No, they're, they're, they're also equally used. Like when he talks about equivocation in the sense of, well, he calls it the equivocation family. He's basically just describing what is being done. Right. And um, he's, he's giving it his own name in the sense of calling it the equivocation family or the NCI family. As far as I know, that terminology is unique to him, but nobody's going to deny 
the description of what he's saying yeah, that what he's trying to say yeah there that it is equivocating right so the uh social trinitarians do equivocate on um p7 and and, and p1 to p3 and the people who affirm relative identity um do count by a relation other than classical identity right Correct. yeah so that's right um so uh, this means that all non-heretical, quote-unquote, solutions or proposed solutions to the LPT fall into either a type of social Trinitarianism or a type of relative identity Trinitarianism. Because as I said, I can't go through in this presentation every specific individual model, so I have to deal with this in the best way that I can in sort of broad strokes. But I will go into some specific examples of social Trinitarian models and relative identity models, but I can't go through every individual one. Um, so now that's going to bring us to talking about what social Trinitarianism actually is. And we've already talked about it a little bit, um, but we want to go into more specificity on it. Okay, so they clearly equivocate on is God between P1 to P3. So when they say that the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, what it means to be God in those premises is different than when they say that the uh, there is exactly one God in premise seven. Now, what exactly is the equivocation? Because remember, I gave the example of bank. Everyone can understand the example of the word bank in English. It can refer to a financial institution. It can also refer to a river bank. Now, what are, what are the meaning of the two senses in when they say the Father is God versus there is exactly one God. So when they say that the Father is God, they are utilizing what is called an is of predication. Now, it sounds complicated, but it's really not. You'll understand it. We utilize it in English all the time. For example, when I say that Jake is happy, what does that mean? It means that whatever happiness is, that is like a property or a quality something that is being predicated of the subject, which is Jake, in this case, referring to me, right? So if I say Jake is happy, I'm saying that at least momentarily, right, um, that Jake has this quality or property of happiness. That's pretty much okay, like so that, right? Right, right. And so that's what's being meant as the is of predication. It's just a fancy way of saying um, it's, it's being used in a sense of Jake is happy in um, that sentence. Now, how does that map on to the Father is God? Well, the application of that would be something like the Father is divine, meaning the Father fully possesses whatever quali quality or qualities are necessary and sufficient in order to be considered divine, the Father possesses those. So, for example, presumably, um, theist will say, like, in order to be God, you must be omnipotent or all-powerful, or you must be omniscient or all-knowing. So the idea would be that the Father has these qualities in order to be considered divine, right? So he has these divine qualities. Now, that's what it means when we say that the Father is God. It's something like the Father is divine. He has these divine qualities. Now, it's going to be the same thing for the Son is God, or the Holy Spirit is God. The Son is divine, and the Holy Spirit is divine in the same way. Okay, so that's the claim. Now, when it comes to premise seven, where they say there is exactly one God, the term God in that um, premise 
is not refer being referred to as like some quality of divinity or anything like that. God is being referred to as the Trinity. Okay. So that's where the equivocation is happening is that when they say that the father is God in the first premise, they're not saying that the father is the Trinity, meaning that the father and the Trinity are one and the same. They're saying that the father has this quality of divinity such that he can be called God in some sense. However, in premise seven, when we say there is exactly one God, they're identifying that one God with the Trinity itself, which there's obviously going to be need to be a little bit more fleshed out in terms of exactly what that means. But presumably it's going to be something like uh, the Trinity is the conjunction of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So together they sort of form the Trinity. It, the Trinity is actually a concrete being. It's not just an abstract uh, terminology that is being used as shorthand, shorthand to refer to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, the Trinity is actually a thing. Okay, so that's where the equivocation is taking place. In the first yeah. instance, that Father is divine, and so God is referring to equality of divinity. In the second instance, in premise seven, the term God is referring to the Trinity, which is actually a thing. So yeah. I know that's a lot to take it, in. It looks, like, it looks like sometimes they're using it as an adjective, and other yeah. times they're using it as an identity, right? So mm -hmm. like when we say Jake is happy, we don't mean that Jake is a feeling. Rather, right. Jake has the feeling of happiness, is experiencing the feeling of happiness, but Jake isn't the feeling happiness. Yeah, that right? would be weird. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, so here when they're saying the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, they mean that they each individual person has the attributes of the divinity of divinity of God, but mm -hmm. looking at them as a as a whole combined, mm -hmm. they form the Trinity, and they and the Trinity itself is the identity God. Right, That's it's something exactly. So, like, uh, another way to give an example with myself, um, I, I have uh, a YouTube channel, and um, some people may know it, uh, called The Muslim Metaphysician, right? So, my name is Jake Brancatella, but my sort of alter ego that some people know me as is The Muslim Metaphysician. Now, when I say that Jake Brancatella is The Muslim Metaphysician, I'm not saying the same thing that I was saying when I said Jake is happy. Because there's not this thing which is like happiness that Jake is identical to, because that would be weird, as I said before. But when I say that Jake Brancatella is the Muslim metaphysician, I'm saying that the two really just are the same thing. So it's yeah, called a that's a and, statement of identity. That's a statement yeah. of identity because the Muslim metaphysician is not an adjective, right? It's okay. Exactly. It's the identity of a person who is Jake Brancatella. Right. Or and and just a last example. It would be like, and most people are familiar with Superman, right? So Superman, according to comics, his name is Clark Kent, right? So it would be like saying that Superman is Clark Kent. They're just two names that refer to the same person. They're not yeah. different people, right? So it's an identity. Yeah, it's an identity statement. So that's what we mean. Something like there's exactly one God. The one God is the Trinity. That's an identity statement as opposed to the Father is divine or the Father is God. It's certain qualities that he has that he possesses in order to be considered God or divine. 
Okay. So um, I hope that's clear. I'm trying to give examples to make it as, as simple as we can. Okay. Um, so that's the bare bones of social Trinitarianism. Of course, there's more that we can say about it, but that's, that's the bare bones that's related to the solution. Now, what are some immediate sort of problems with social Trinitarianism and which we'll see that social Trinitarians themselves admit? Well, it seems like there is one God in one sense and at least three gods in another sense. And notice I put the, uh, the one God as a capital G and, and, and the three gods as a lowercase g for a reason. What do I mean by that? Because there's a sense in which there's one God because the one God is a trinity, but there's another sense in which there are three gods because each one of the persons is still supposed to be anyway, fully God in the sense that whatever God is, they fully possess that in order to be considered God. So it still seems like there's another sense in which there are still three gods. And if the initial problem was an attempt to get away from tritheism or there being three gods, then social Trinitarians still have more work to do in explaining how they get around that problem. Okay. Now, especially considering how they de define what a person is. So in the literature on the subject, even though all Christians affirm or all Trinitarian Christians affirm that there are three persons in the Trinity, the term person is a very ambiguous term that has been defined quite differently over the centuries and still is today. However, social Trinitarians, they typically define a person as a self-conscious agent, basically an agent that has his own unique mind and will. Okay. And if that's the case, and each one of the persons are God, it seems very difficult to see how you don't have tritheism or three gods. You have three agents, each with their own distinct mind and will, and they're each fully God. Well, seems like you've got three gods then. Whatever the, the Trinity terms out to be, well, okay, there's one God in that sense, but it still seems like there's three gods in another sense, Right. And so that's the I mean, that's the you know, it's a predication, right? Like, okay, there's so there's so they're saying that <clears throat> the father is God, but they're using God here as an adjective. Yeah. Uh, so basically, uh, the father has divine attributes. The son mm -hmm. has divine attributes. The Holy Spirit has divine attributes, and they also say that each one of them is a person. So in yeah. reality, what they're saying is that the father is a divine person. The son is a divine person. The Holy Spirit is a divine person, but what is a divine person other than a God, right? Yeah, it's um, going to count as a God. It's just going to count as a God, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that's the problem is like, well, okay, you equivocated and let's, let's throw you a bone just for the sake of argument. Now, this is going to be disputed later on. Let's just say, okay, you have one God in one sense. You still have three gods in another sense at minimum. Right, because you still have these three things which qualify as divine, and to be divine is just to count as a god, as exactly what you were saying. And right, I mean, so at the end of the day, the god, the one god here, what does mm -hmm. it even refer to? Because if it's going mm -hmm. to refer to the nature, well, the nature is impersonal, so it's a what. So is the one god, a one what now, mm -hmm. or is it referring to the one group of three persons? But even a group is an impersonal conglomerate of individuals. So it's still a what? 
But, you know, throughout scripture, yeah. you, you see God as being a single he, right? Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, and I, it's, I don't know what this is solving, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's definitely a problem, which I'm going to raise later on, is what exactly is the Trinity? And um, so on different social uh, models, you have different answers to that. But I think as you're laying out, it seems like you're going to have a problem on no matter which way you go on that. But we'll say much more about that. What exactly is the Trinity supposed to be later on? Now, William Lane Craig, who he himself is a social Trinitarian, he says, and I quote, the most pressing task of contemporary social Trinitarians is to find some more convincing answer to why, on their view, there are not three gods. So he's admitting exactly what I said, like, okay, you made this equivocation uh, move, but still, nevertheless, the most pressing problem, right, that social Trinitarians must try to solve is why, on their view, there are not three gods. They need to try to explain that. So William Lane Craig, as a social Trinitarian, is admitting this, and I'm just quoting him to show that this is not just merely me claiming this or my analysis of social Trinitarianism and, and the immediate problem that they face, right? Yeah. So that's very a, important. A quick note to the listeners, uh, to those listeners who may not be aware, but William Lane Craig is the most prominent Christian apologist uh, in, mm -hmm. in the English-speaking world today, without a shadow of a doubt. Right. And he's also someone who, um, you know, was sort of uh, famous for popularizing uh, the Kalam cosmological argument in modern times. So some of the uh, Muslim audience may be um, familiar with him. But yeah, he's a, he's an extremely prominent um you know, the, a philosopher and theologian in his own right, and uh, apologist. So, um, yeah, th again, this is not William, your Christian neighbor, right? Or William from down the street. This is a, this is a, a powerhouse uh, in the Christian um, community anyway. Now, some people are going to want to dispute that and, you know, going to have problems with William Lane Craig, fine. Um, but there's really no dispute in terms of his influence and prominence, uh, amongst uh, the Christian community for the past, I don't know, 30 plus years at least. So yeah, um, some comments from Calvinists in the, in the YouTube section. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fine. Everybody <laughs> has their sort of intra-Christian debates. Right. But the point is we're doing our best to try to um, like, I'm not quoting, notice I'm not quoting all yeah. these skeptical sources or yeah. um, heretics or, or, or Muslim sources even. No, I'm trying to at least deal with, um, Christians and, and Christian scholarship as best I can, as, as, as fairly as I can, right? Okay, so um, here's, here's another person who I, we've mentioned earlier, Richard Swinburne, who, um, uh, who went to Oxford, right, and, and taught, I'm sorry, sorry, he taught at Oxford. And um, Richard Swinburne is one of the, again, one of the most influential uh, Christian philosophers of the past 50 years especially uh, with his attacks on things like atheism, right? Um, but he's wrote, written a lot on, on Christian theology as well. Now, he himself is a social Trinitarian. Now, it would be shocking for some of the audience to know that he wrote a paper called Could There Be More Than One God? And this was a paper, I believe it was in the 1980s, in which literally the title of the paper is could there be more than one God? And it's an academic paper, right? It's not just a blog post or anything like that. Now, you would think if Christians affirm premise seven, which says there's exactly one God, 
Richard Swinburne is going to go on in the rest of the paper to explain to you, no, 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 there couldn't be more than one God, and then explain to you how. But he does exactly the opposite of that. He actually argues that there can be more than one God, and there actually is more than one God, which is <laughs> quite shocking, right? So just in case you think I'm misrepresenting him, here's a quote from the paper, which he says, and I quote, traditionally, the first God is called Father, the second, Son or Word, the third, Spirit. Father seems a name appropriate to the original source, and he's basically uh, referring to what's known as the doctrine of divine processions or uh, the fact that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father and the Holy Spirit proceeds forth either from the Father and the Son, which is the Western view, the Catholic or the Protestant view, or um, from the Father alone, which is the sort of Eastern view, which is the filioque. That's a whole other controversy. But I just want to point out that he's referring to the Father as a name that's appropriate to the original source, which some of the church fathers describe it as the source or the fount of divinity, right? Um, and that's a whole other doctrine, whole other can of worms. But... Um, both, then he goes on to say that both Son and Word suggest a second or third God. Wow, that's quite shocking to, to just openly state it as such. He says, Biblical tradition apportions both these names to Christ. And if the second person of the Trinity became incarnate, they are then appropriate names for that second person. Likewise, the name of Spirit for the third God derives from his traditional role in sanctification. So Richard Swinburne, who is a social Trinitarian, is not only has to deal with the problem of tritheism, at least in his earlier works, he's just admitting, look, okay, three gods. So what? And so that's, uh, that's uh, the show. Jake, I mean, I mean, as far as I know, Richard Swinburne is a Trinitarian, and I don't think, you know, his fellow Christians, uh, you know, anathematized him or took feared him. Um so do you think that maybe what he's trying to say here is that when he says both son and word suggest a secretary, maybe he's just trying to say what Gregory said, which is that it appears that this is what's going on, but he doesn't, but he's still a devout Trinitarian, right? I, I mean, yeah, I don't, he, I don't think he, he's, a, he's an explicit polytheist, right? Um, he, he, is, um, he is a devout Trinitarian, but I think he's also an explicit polytheist. <laughs> but I know that sounds like a contradiction, but I'm just saying I think he's being a bit more honest here, uh, from my perspective anyway, and just saying, well, yeah, in a certain sense, there are three gods. And the reason why I, um, I think that's the case is because even other uh, social Trinitarians, like, for example, um, Dr. Joshua Sijawade, who I think has been on the program here on Blogging Theology, he came on for an interview. And unfortunately, I don't have the quote in front of me right here, but he did an interview with uh, Dale Tuggy on his podcast. And Dale Tuggy was questioning him about his model of the Trinity. And he explicitly said in that interview, people can check it out, that in a certain sense, there are three gods. And he is a follower of Richard Swinburne. In fact, he these are his words, not mine. And, and, and um, Josh is a friend of mine. So... Um, I don't intend to misrepresent him in any way, but he did explicitly say, in a certain sense, there are three gods, and he calls himself a Richard Swinburne fanboy. In fact, his his PhD thesis was on Richard Swinburne's model of the Trinity. Okay, so he's a 
secondary source who's in the same line as Richard Swinburne and admitting that in a certain sense, yeah, there are three gods. And in fact, he explicitly said that monotheism is not about how many gods you believe in. So, <laughs> I mean, what can I say? Uh, you now, think they're equivocating on the word God there? So, so I yeah. guess they're trying to say that, look, there are three persons that have featured, you know, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess there, there are three persons that you could each label as gods, so the three gods in that sense, but ultimately yeah. in terms of identity, there is the God, which is the Trinity, right? I, uh, I just don't yeah, 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 exactly. still remain a uh, mainstream Christian <clears throat> uh, by explicitly stating that there are three gods. And yeah, no, no, no. The, the word God there. And... Well, that's right. That's why they're social Trinitarians, but what I'm saying is they are admitting back to what I said here. There's one God in one sense, but there's mm, three mm. gods in another sense. Mm. They're willing to grant that, that there actually are three gods in another sense. And we as monotheists, we want to say, well, no, there's not three gods in any sense. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? So, so yeah, that's right. Um, now, Josh. Um, I, I mean, sorry uh, to say, but as, uh, I know, I know it's not directly related, but I just want to say that like, you know, when you, when you do read the Bible, even the Bible, yeah. and it's stressing all over the place that there's only one God, yeah. and come and say, well, there are three gods in some sense. It's like, mm. is that really something that you're getting out of Scripture, or, or did you just, are you just, yeah. uh, you know, desperate to make this doctrine work somehow? Right, exactly. So, um, listen, that that's what they're saying. I'm just, what I want to point out is, <clears throat> reason why I'm quoting this is, it's not just me saying there's one God in one sense and three in another. This is an example of somebody admitting that, yeah, there is a sense in which there are three gods. That That's the point, right? So the immediate criticism is, well, it doesn't look like monotheism anymore then. I don't care about this idea of there's one God in one sense. You're still admitting three gods, right? Mm -hmm. So um, <clears throat> it seems like it's going to be a big problem. Now, um, there is a philosopher in the same text, um, Brian Leftow. He's also a Trinitarian, academic, and <clears throat> he strongly condemns Richard Swinburne's model of the Trinity, which um, sometimes goes under the name functional monotheism. And it's actually in the title of the, um, the view itself. The reason why it's called functional monotheism is because the, quote unquote, three gods function as if they're one, because they all, you know, agree with each other and get along, and it's like one big happy family, right? So it's functional monotheist account, presumably because they function as if there's one God. Now we'll get into more uh, what we mean by that, but just to show that, I mean, it just looks like polytheism. So Leftow, who is a Trinitarian himself, <clears throat> he criticizes uh, social Trinitarianism and specifically um, Richard Swinburne's account known as functional monotheism in a paper which is called Anti-Social Trinitarianism, which is pretty, pretty clever uh, for, for the title. <clears throat> so he says in that paper, and I quote, but it is not plausible that one can make Greek paganism a belief in not many gods, but one by adding to it the claims that the gods are omnipotent and necessary. So, on the functional monotheist account, the reason the persons are one God and the Olympians are not is that the persons are far more alike than Zeus and his brood. 
far more cooperative and linked by procession. But it is hardly plausible that Greek paganism would have been a Betty would have been a form of monotheism had Zeus and company been more alike, better behaved, and linked by the right causal relations. In other words, he's he's comparing Greek paganism to um, this functional monotheist account of Richard Swinburne and saying, "Look, what's really the difference between the Greek pagan gods and the Trinity in this case?" The only difference is you're saying that in the Trinity, they're more alike, they're supposedly all omnipotent and necessary, and they get along, like they're better behaved. They all want to will the same thing. Well, it doesn't seem like if that were the case with the Greek pagan gods that we would all of a sudden consider that monotheism. No, we would just say, these are three gods that seem like they just better behaved and get along with each other, right? So... This is Brian Leftow himself, a, who is a Trinitarian Christian, who's saying, listen, brother, this just seems like polytheism and is literally comparing it to Greek paganism. And there's no substantial difference between the two in order to justify why the Trinity on this model would qualify as monotheism, but Greek paganism wouldn't or uh, vice versa. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty strong attack. On, um, so basically, it's monotheism as long as you have a cooperative team of gods, per se. Right, right. It's so just like one god actually refers to the group or to the team of gods. Mm. Yeah, so it, exactly. it doesn't matter if it's three. It could have been five or six or seven as long, or a million. As long as their will is synchronized and they're all cooperating and they all have yeah. the same attributes, as long as they function as mm -hmm. one God, then it's monotheism. Right, exactly. And most people are going to be like, what? No way. Yeah. That's three gods, right? So, um, yeah. So, so, yeah. So this not actually looking at the ontological entities themselves <laughs> that exist. One, two, three. That, that doesn't matter. It's like, are you guys cooperating or you're not cooperating? Do you appear to be one mm. team or one group? Mm. Um, yeah. Right. yeah. That's pretty uh, mind-boggling. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So now William Lane Craig, who we mentioned earlier, he has a similar claim to make. <clears throat> he says, as but, for... Sorry to interrupt you, Jake. We could just go back to yeah. your previous slide. So here, are you saying that Leftow is criticizing social Trinitarianism as a whole or a specific model that Swinburne is pushing, which is the functional monotheist model? Um, in this... In this section, he's specifically criticizing the functional monotheist account, which is there's one God because all of the persons um, have their wills are synchronized, right? Mm -hmm. And he's saying, well, that's not enough. That's too thin of a definition of monotheism because you could have how many beings that are each considered God and they supposedly all are well-behaved and want to do the same thing, and that counts as monotheism? Well, no, that just doesn't seem right. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's referring to specifically um, functional monotheism here, but there are other models of social Trinitarianism that could come under the critique. It just depends. Yeah. Um, so William Lane Craig gives a si similar criticism of Swinburne here, and he says, and I quote, as for the unity of will among the three divine persons, 
there is no reason at all to see this as a con constitutive of a collective substance. For three separate gods, who were each omnipotent and morally perfect, would similarly act cooperatively. If Swinburne's argument against the possibility of dissension is correct, meaning the possibility of them not uh, agreeing is correct, thus there is no salient difference between functional monotheism and polytheism. That's so, similar to Leftow's uh, criticism. Pretty yeah, similar, basically the same criticism of Leftow. What I want to point out here, just so that nobody in the audience is confused, I am not granting that on Swinburne's account or even William Lane Craig's account that you could necessarily have three different beings that, or in this case, the three persons of the Trinity that all um, have their own distinct will and yet that they always agree, right? So I'm not, I'm not granting that. Um, I'm just not really attacking that for now because it's not really germane to the quote or the point that I'm trying to bring up in terms of the criticism of the model. What we're saying is, even if we granted that for the sake of argument, even if we granted we had three beings, each one of them were fully God, and they their wills were synchronized such that they all did the same thing, it still would count as three gods. It wouldn't be one God. That's the point that we're trying to make yeah, I mean, with this. Cooperation uh, is hardly the decisive criterion for determining monotheism. Exactly, right. That's That's the point. Okay, so uh, both William Lane Craig and Leftow are sharing the same criticism on Swinburne's model of social Trinitarianism. Seems like he doesn't avoid tritheism, and that's why, in some sense, he's willing to admit, well, okay, in some sense, there are three gods. Well, that doesn't seem like monotheism to us, and most Christians are not going to want to say, well, yeah, in a certain sense, there are three gods, because uh, that seems to go against orthodoxy, right? This is not language that is uh, appropriate. Now, um, we don't want to stop there because we want to give social Trinitarianism another uh, chance, right? So <clears throat> maybe someone else who can take the basic equivocation structure of social Trinitarianism and try to avoid other uh, potential pitfalls. So um, we've been talking about Craig all this time, so we might as well take a look at his model. So William Lane Craig has another version of social Trinitarianism, which he calls Trinity monotheism. Now, it takes the same idea as the equivocation, but it has some other distinctive features about it that are different from um, Richard Swinburne's model. So what are those? Well, he says, obviously, each person is divine. Well, Swinburne says the same thing. Uh, but for Craig, he says that the persons are parts of God. Now, what I mean by that is, and what Craig means by that is, he doesn't mean that they are parts in the sense that are they're sort of put together and they can be taken apart and removed like a Lego set. What he means by that they are parts of God is that the Father, for him, the, the Trinity is the one God. And the Father is obviously not the whole Trinity. So in a sense, he's a part of God because... He isn't the whole of God, although the, he does not believe that the Father can be separated from the Trinity or whatever it is, right? They're necessarily whole together in some sense, okay? But he does use the term part to refer to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as parts of God. So I hope that's clear um, for the audience. Um, now, 
He also says that the persons are not instances of the divine nature. In other words, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit don't fully possess the divine nature. They're not instances of the divine nature, where many other um, Trinitarians, and presumably Richard Swinburne would want to say, that each one of the persons are instances and do fully possess that divine nature. Similar to how Gregory of Nyssa talked about, remember he gave the example of Peter, James, and John. Well, Peter, James, and John fully possess and are instances of the human nature. Well, the analogy for that would be that um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are instances of and fully possess the divine nature. Well, Craig, because he recognizes the problem of tritheism with Richard Swinburne and other social Trinitarian accounts, He's saying, well, look, to be an instance of the divine nature is just to be a God. And if each one of the persons are God in that sense, then it seems like you can't avoid tritheism. Seems like you're going to have three gods, right? So Craig, in order to try to avoid that, he wants to say that the persons are parts of God, although not separable, and wants to say that they're not instances of, uh, of the divine nature in order to try to avoid tritheism or worries about tritheism okay so so that point is clearer like uh, what is really trying to be said here so i mean like when we're talking about divine nature itself i mean it's not the tangible object that can be you know shared like okay here you take a third of this and you take a third of that nature and you take a third of that nature and you guys share them you know it what is actually being said here? Because it, it does seem to me that they do say um, that that the Father is fully God and that the Son is fully God and the Holy Spirit is fully God in the sense that they that they all have the full attributes that a God is expected to have. So, mm -hmm. what is exactly meant here when they're saying, when Craig is saying that they're not instances of the divine nature? Uh, because mm -hmm. it, it, they're not dividing up the nature into different properties and saying, okay, you take omniscience and you take omnipresence and you take omnipotence and but combined you all have the properties together i was wondering if you could elaborate a bit more on this point just so that we can understand better what mm, solution yeah. craig thinks he's working towards here yeah well craig actually does do that he he divides the attributes up not amongst the persons necessarily but he distinguishes the trinity which he believes is like some concrete entity um, and says that the Trinity has certain attributes that the Father, um, Son, and Holy Spirit don't have in and of themselves. They have it as in, in, in sort of a derivative fashion. Um, so let me, let me give an example. The Trinity, according to Craig, is both ase, or possesses the attribute of aseity, which means self-existence or self-sufficiency, Right. Um, means to be uncaused, its existence is not dependent upon something else. <clears throat> now, for William Lane Craig, the Trinity is ase, or has aseity, and also has the attribute of necessity, which means that God is typically understood to be a necessary being. He couldn't fail to exist. God must exist in that sense. Now, those two attributes, which are fundamental to theism, Craig believes that the Trinity has them in a unique sense and that the persons of the Trinity, because they're grounded in the Trinity, they have them in a derivative sense, only in the sense that they are parts of the whole. 
So sometimes you can have qualities or attributes that are ascribed to a whole of something that then get uh, um, sort of um, ascribed to the part of that whole. And that's what Craig is doing there. Um, likewise, he does that with other attributes in the reversed way, reverse way when it comes to um, things like omniscience, right? Um, we can say that because for him, the Trinity is not a person. So it makes it very difficult to see, well, if the Trinity is not a person and a personal agent, how could the Trinity be omniscient? Well, for Craig, the Trinity is omniscient because it has three parts of it, each which qualify as being omniscient. And so those properties of omniscience get ascribed to the whole, which is the Trinity. So he has, I mean, it's kind of difficult to understand, but he has this weird way of parsing out and dividing up the attributes. Um, and so the persons possess certain attributes uniquely and in virtue of that get ascribed to the whole, which is the Trinity and then vice versa. Certain if attributes. I were to, if I were to push Craig into a corner and probe him and, yeah. and ask him, name me a single divine attribute that you do not believe the son has or the father <coughs> has or the Holy Spirit has, I don't think he would be able to name a single attribute. Like if I were um, to really, I don't think he will say, yeah, well, the son was, you know, not fully, i say, uh, not fully self-sufficient. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think he would say that. Um, well, he would say that they have it, but only in a derivative sense. But he may so say something like this, that only the Trinity is triune. And in order to be God in the sense that he's concerned with as the one God, you need to be triune. And each one of the persons individually are not triune, right? So presumably he could say something like, well, in, uh, in order to possess the divine nature or to be an instance of the divine nature, you must be triune. Each one of the persons individually are not triune. Therefore, they don't possess the divine nature. Um, so he could say something like that. Um, but yeah, uh, obviously he would have to be questioned on uh, a yeah, bit further uh, on that point. Yeah, because I, I, would, I would love to probe him on what would be the implications of that and whether there are any qualitative differences between how he would affirm attributes for them individually than if he were to assert that they are instances of the divine nature. <clears throat> because, uh, yeah. at, at the end of the day, if he's still going to say that the son was omnipotent, omniscient, and so on and so forth, will affirm all the omni attributes mm -hmm. for each of the persons, then in reality, in essence, nothing has mm -hmm. really changed. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, then uh, another distinctive feature is obviously what I said, only the, the Trinity is an instance of the divine nature. There's only one instance of it, and it is the Trinity. And for him, of course, the one God is the Trinity. Um, now, I mean, the, ba the most basic way I can think of it to try to visualize it is imagine like a big circle with three smaller circles within it. And each one of them are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And like the big circle encompassing them is the Trinity, which sort of holds within it um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Um, so that's the best way I think you can try to visualize Craig's model. Now, he gives an analogy to the Trinity, 
And a lot of people may be uncomfortable with this. In fact, many Christians are, but this is what he says. And I quote, Perhaps we can get a start at this question by means of an analogy. In Greco-Roman mythology, there is said to be there is said to to stand guarding the gates of Hades, a three-headed dog named Cerberus or Kerberus. Although the church fathers rejected analogies like Kerberus, once we have given up divine simplicity, Kerberus does does seem to represent what Augustine called an image of the Trinity among creatures. Okay, so what is Craig doing here? He's trying to give an analogy to the Trinity, and the analogy he gives is this three-headed dog known in Greek pagan mythology named Kerberus. And he admits that the church fathers would have rejected such analogies, but he thinks it's because they had an assumption about divine simplicity. Now, for those who don't know what divine simplicity is, um, it's basically just a doctrine that as uh, whatever is in God uh, is God. So whatever you think is typically ascribed to God is identical to God. So let me give an example. Uh, typically, theists want to say that God is omnipotent and omniscient, or he's all-knowing and all-powerful. Now, if you believe in divine simplicity, you want to say that really in God, there aren't two attributes that are distinct, that, which is omnipotence and omniscience. They're really just the same. They're really just two names that refer to uh, God's essence or something like that. Now, what Craig is saying is once you give up on divine simplicity and accept that, well, no, God could have multiple distinct aspects to him or what he would call parts, even though they're not separable. He says once you give up on that, he doesn't think there's really a problem with the analogy. And <clears throat> he references uh, St. Augustine, uh, who very frequently tried to give like analogies to the Trinity uh, amongst creation. And he's saying that this is his analogy for what it is based on his model. Now, for those who don't know what Kerberos is, here's a picture of what oh, that um, <laughs> of what that dog looks like. Um, oh, he's, he's a three three headed dog. Um, and what Craig is basically saying in, in line with his model is basically the analogy is supposed to be something like this. You have one dog because it's basically one material entity or like one body. So like they share the same body. And so we could say there's one dog, even though they have three heads, right? There's three parts in the same way that the Trinity, there's like, remember that one big circle that has those three smaller circles in it? Uh, or that make up that um, one bigger one big circle. Uh, so that's what the analogy is supposed to be. But most people don't want to compare uh, God to a three-headed dog. <laughs> so, I mean, even many Christians are going to be uncomfortable uncom with this uh, uh, analogy, and, you know, rightly so. Um, but Craig, I mean, he uses it, so what can we say? But, um, yeah, I... I I'd, Personally, I think it's inappropriate, but um, um, so, so basically, according to Craig, like, would would Siamese twins be one human being? Mm. Yeah, so that that's what I'm going to get to here, um, in in terms of problems with Craig's model. So I mentioned the the issue of Siamese twins here. Um, obviously, initially, the 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 first problem is going to be uh, partialism. Now, from my research, uh, and there's dispute about this, of whether or not partialism is actually considered a formal heresy, um, Craig is going to want to say something like, well, 
it's not actually a formal heresy. <clears throat> There's nothing in scripture that commits me to divine simplicity. So whatever, it's not really a problem in terms of partialism. Other people who want to affirm divine simplicity or want to have maybe a more unified understanding of God are going to want to reject um, something like Craig's model because it, it, it does actually uh, result in partialism. And there are ecumenical statements that say that God is simple, um, but then there, you know, to try to be fair to Craig, there's going to be interpretive dispute over exactly what it means for God to be simple. Um, so, you know, I'll let Christians decide that for themselves on whether or not they think um, Craig's model runs against orthodoxy in that aspect, right? <clears throat> now, um, I think the, the more deeply problematic part of, of Craig's model is, is what you were just bringing up there, brother, is, is whether or not Craig actually avoids tritheism, because um, it seems to me that tritheism is still looming. And the example of the dog, right? Is it the case that we have three dogs there? Or is it one dog with an overlapping body? Well, I would think it's three dogs with an overlapping body, right? <clears throat> and that's because in the case of uh, Siamese twins or, or uh, conjoined twins, <clears throat> which is a, a medical condition in which sometimes twins are actually born with their bodies connected at um, one or more parts. Sometimes it's at the head, which is um, very unfortunate, or other times in another part of the body, they are these two, tw these twins are actually joined together. Well, it seems by the very language that we're using, by the fact that we're calling them twins, it seems like we have two human beings. We wouldn't say that there's only one human being. You would say there's two human beings there with a partially overlapping body, right? And so in the case of the, the dog, why wouldn't we say that there's three dogs with an overlapping body. And <clears throat> this is an objection that was actually brought forward by a Christian uh, named Daniel Howard Schneider in critiquing uh, Craig's model. And I think it is an actually uh, a very good criticism. And that's what you were bringing up uh, a bit earlier, uh, brother. I don't know if you had any further comment on that issue. Oh. <clears throat> okay. It's so counterintuitive and arbitrary to me, like how, how how he's deciding mm. to count things, right? And and you'd figure that such a fundamental doctrine that is stressed page after page mm. in, in in the scriptures can mm. like just to not be can, cannot be clear, you know, uh, mm. about the city. Yeah, exactly. So um, it it seems like uh, Craig still has a problem with tritheism there potentially. Another issue uh, where he could have a problem with tritheism is that. Craig is what's called a substance dualist. He affirms a doctrine known as substance dualism, which uh, talks about the nature of humans. And substance dualism is the idea that uh, human beings are made up of two components or two substances. One is a soul and the other is a body. Now the body is considered to be a physical substance, which is just obvious. And the soul, at least on Craig's view in substance dualism, is considered to be something like an immaterial uh, substance or something that is not made up of, of matter, right? And on this model, the person 
is considered a substance because in substance dualism, you identify typically the person with the soul. So the person himself is the soul. Mm -hmm. And if the person himself is the soul, well, then the person is a substance, right? And so if on Craig's model, you have three persons, each which are their own self-conscious agent, well, then given how he cashes out substance dualism, it seems like you have three substances and three substances would be three gods. Um, and that's why when you go back all the way to what we talked about earlier, the consubstantiality, typically Christians want to say there's only one substance in the Trinity. Well, this view seems to entail uh, basically uh, other commitments that Craig holds to seems to entail that it would result in three substances, which would be two more than you would want to say. It looks like tritheism still is there. So that's it another a, serious a concern. Mental oversight on his part. Yeah, yeah. I, it seems like a very serious problem um, for, for, for Craig here. Um, now, there, there are other problems or other concerns. And one is uh, one that you mentioned earlier, or you hinted at earlier, <clears throat> is that on Craig's model, God is not actually a personal agent, okay? <clears throat> so for rem remember for him, the Trinity is, is, is a thing, but it's not actually a rational agent. Mm -hmm. It's not a being that actually performs actions. Now, why is that problematic? Well, all throughout the Bible, it seems that God actually is a rational agent. He's a being that says things, that does things, that interacts with creation, etc., and so if on Craig's model, it turns out that God is not a personal agent, but on the biblical account, God actually is a personal agent, then it seems like Craig's model is deeply unbiblical, right? So that is a very serious problem. Yeah, I, th now, I think it was Anthony yeah. Buzzard, uh, a Unitarian Christian, who said that, you know, the personal pronoun, personal pronouns, singular, singular personal pronouns are ascribed to God in the Old Testament at least 20,000 20, times. Even when, you read yeah. the, even when you read the Ten Commandments, it's like he, <clears throat> right? And it's like, who's the he here? Exactly. Just say, well, it's just the Father speaking. Well, you know, <clears throat> that's quite ad hoc. And mm -hmm. um, and he, you know, can't refer to the group or the team of gods. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it seems uh, runs counter to Scripture as well. Yeah. Now you actually mentioned the Father thing. I actually think it's a better solution than for, for Craig, because, for example, somebody like um, Josh Shijawade, he believes that he, he's, he's a social Trinitarian. But for him, what he does in premise seven, instead of identifying the one God as the Trinity, he identifies the one God as the Father. And it's primarily one, because of this reason, because in Scripture and even in tradition, even in things like the Nicene Creed, the term God is used primarily for the Father. So he would, in order to try to get around this problem, he'll say that, yeah, most of those references in the Old Testament refer to God as the Father, right? <clears throat> now, that doesn't come without other problems, right, to be fair. There's other concerns there. But it does avoid this problem in a sense that God, on that view, is the Father, and he's still a personal agent. But for Craig, he doesn't do that, right? So for, for somebody like um, uh, Josh, uh, presumably 
you could say the you know the Trinity is just shorthand, uh, and it just a shorthand to refer to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this isn't like this entity which is over and above the persons, which is the Trinity, right? Um, um, but then, yeah, you're you're just dealing with a different model. But I wanted to just explain that because other people are aware of that, and that's why they may take a different view uh, on that. But when you say that the Trinity is God, well, not only does it uh, run into the problem that, well, on that view, God is not a personal agent and God in the Bible is a personal agent, but also there is nowhere in the Bible, both in the Old or New Testament, that the term God refers to the Trinity. Now, I'm not using an example like uh, this criticism, which has been run against Christians for a long time. You know, where in the Bible is the term Trinity used? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm trying to say is that yeah, the because idea <laughs> yeah the, the the idea itself, but when you're using the and it's specific to dealing with this problem, when you're using the term God in the seventh premise to refer to the Trinity, then you would think that if that actually is true, that God in the uh, both either the Old or New Testament and presumably both, right? Would there would be at least one instance where the term God is being used in the fashion that Craig is using it? In other words, it seems rather ad hoc for Craig to say, well, yeah, in order to try to avoid this problem, we're going to use the term God to refer to the Trinity, but yet there's nowhere in Scripture where it's used that way. It, it seems kind of strange to, to do it like that. So, um, yeah, so on Craig's view, God is not a personal agent, but in the Bible, God clearly is. So it seems to be incompatible with the Bible. Yeah. Now, so, you know, Craig, Craig can't just simply say, hey, hey, look, I'm just trying to present a possible model here. No, it's like you're, you're introducing new theological beliefs here that are not rooted in Scripture. Right. So, yeah, that you're, you're, you, you got to know where to stop. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. exactly. And so there are going to be uh, also some historical concerns about Craig's model. Whether or not you think partialism is a heresy is another question, but um, throughout church history, uh, you don't see uh, the church fathers and other representatives of the Trinitarian uh, position having a model like Craig's, where they're talking about parts of God and talking, you know, talking about um, Kerberos as like a, a three-headed dog and, and and stuff like that. And the problem with that is, is that. If you take other Christian doctrines seriously, that God is actually guiding the church um, and uh, by the Holy Spirit, and that th this doctrine um, or, or this representation of the Trinity is true, then although Craig is just supposedly presenting a possible model, that if this were the actual model or something like it, then wouldn't we see it represented earlier? Like, why would it take to come to the 20th or 21st century for a modern theologian to say, well, maybe it's like this and maybe this is how we solve the problem. Well, nobody else throughout history really presented the model in, in, of the Trinity in this fashion. So it's kind of like you would think or you would expect. Yeah. When it comes to Islamic scholarship, when it comes to like divine simplicity and divine timelessness and whatnot, yeah. no, no matter how far back you go, you'll always find different camps, right? Like you'll always... Mm -hmm see uh you know different camps debating these issues but i presume that it's not the same thing when it comes to 
Christianity. So it's like the rejection of divine simplicity appears to be a modern phenomenon within Christian circles. And divine, a rejection of divine timelessness and the shift towards the affirming God's temporality also appears to be a recent shift within Christian academia, perhaps in the last 40 years or so. Uh, yeah, well, well, what I could um, somewhat what I could say to try to be fair is there may be some interpretive dispute about whether or not um, early Trinitarians, <clears throat> some of them may have rejected divine simplicity in the sense that uh, the divine attributes or in the Eastern tradition, what they call something like the divine energies um, uh, may, uh, and, and this goes into like what's known as the essence energy distinction and dispute. It could be argued somebody like St. Basil, who we mentioned earlier, who was in the early fourth century, he could have actually rejected divine simplicity. I'm willing to grant that. And there's interpretive dispute over that. Some Catholics might not want to hear that, but some Orthodox might like hearing that. Um, however, the way in which he was rejecting divine simplicity was on a question of the attributes, like God's omniscience or God's omnipotence, and rejecting that those attributes are identical to the essence, right? But that's not the same thing as saying, and, and so in that sense, if you want to use loosely speaking that the attributes would be, in Craig's terminology, quote unquote, parts, but not separable, right? <clears throat> but in, no, in none of his writings or anyone else, if you tried to use them as like a springboard for divine simplicity, are they describing the persons in the same way, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the difference, is there you could make an argument maybe about the attributes but I don't think you could easily make the same argument about the persons in the way that Craig is couching and describing them. Does that make sense? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So, um, so yeah, there's going to be a historical concern there. Now, um, there's a further argument, which um, I've called Leftow's Dilemma. <clears throat> and uh, I'll get to that in a second, because that requires a diagram for me to go through. Now, Touching on some of the critiques that we gave in the previous slide, um, da Daniel Howard Schneider comments on Craig's view by explaining it's not biblical. So he says, and I quote, there can be no lending of a property, i.e. a whole getting a property from one of its parts, unless the borrower is antecedently the sort of thing that can have it. Now, don't worry, I'm going to try to break that language down in a second. Therefore, unless God is antecedently the sort of thing that can act intentionally, that is, unless God is a person, God cannot borrow the property of creating the heavens and the earth from the sun. So remember, <clears throat> I explained that Craig like tries to divide the attributes and say, oh, certain attributes are of the whole, like the Trinity, and then the parts get ascribed that in light of being a part of that whole, and then certain attributes are ascribed to the parts, like omniscience, and in this case, agency and uh, uh, personality, etc. And uh, they're described of the persons in that way. And then theoretically, Craig wants to say, well, therefore, God will get those properties in some sense, um, because he, he is the whole and parts of him have that quality or aspect. What Daniel Howard Schneider is saying is that doesn't make any sense. Because in the case of the persons, well, okay, they have this aspect of personhood, right? Or they're, they're persons, they can act intentionally. Well, if God isn't even the sort of thing that could possibly have that attribute, which on Craig's model is 
the Trinity, then how could it make sense to even ascribe such a property to the whole? It doesn't make any sense. That's what his claim is. And so he's saying that God, who is the Trinity, cannot borrow the property of creator from the son because God isn't the sort of thing that could possibly be a creator under Craig's conception, right? So that's the criticism he's making there. And he goes on further to say uh, along the same lines, he says, all other statements involving acts attributed to God in the Bible will likewise turn out to be false. Uh, well, sorry, will likewise turn out to be strictly and literally false. If God is not a person or an agent, then God does not know anything, cannot act, cannot choose, cannot be morally good, cannot be worthy of worship. In other words, if for William Lane Craig, God, the term God and how he's using it, the one and only true God, which is the Trinity, is not a person, he's not an agent, he's not the type of thing that can be, you know, have knowledge and perform actions and choose and be ascribed with moral properties and cannot be worthy of worship. And he's saying that the statements in the Bible that describe God as such, well, if that's supposed to be the Trinity, then it would turn out that those statements would strictly and literally speaking be false. And no Christian is going to want to admit that. So you're either going to have to say, well, those statements are false. And then, well, I mean, like you're basically throwing the Bible out the window, or you're going to have to go back to the drawing board and say, no, the term God can't mean what you said it means because this is the result. So that is, for me, an extremely uh, strong criticism, and it's what you were hinting at earlier. I don't know if you had any um, uh, further comment on that, brother, before I move on to the next slide. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's just good to remember that. So for, for Craig, would he say that God is the divine nature, or would he say that it is the collective three divine persons together that is the Trinity. I think it's the latter, correct? It's the latter. Yeah, it's the latter. It's the latter. So, yeah. So for him, it's a group. <coughs> God is a group of, of divine persons. So it is not a single person <laughs> that you can call out to. Um, yeah, it's not a person. Yeah. It's right. not a person. It's not an agent. Yeah. It's not a being that acts at all. He doesn't do anything. So it's like, well, God created the heavens and earth. No, he didn't. I mean, um, so yeah, it's a, it's, it's a big problem. But <clears throat> there's another argument here, which I've called. Um, Wouldn't Craig say whatever yeah. each of the divine persons do mm -hmm. could be ascribed to the collective group that is God, the Trinity? So if one of them, the Father, creates the heavens and the earth, I can mm -hmm. say that God as a team, as a group, the Trinity, created the heavens and the earth. Um, you know, the Holy Spirit guides the believers. And, uh, you know, and therefore I could say God guides the believers because, you know, I could describe the actions of the members <clears throat> of the group to the group as a whole. So let's take the, you know, let's take a, you know, a soccer team or a football team. Right. Um, if one of the players in the team scores a goal, I could still say that the team scored the goal. Right. I could ascribe mm -hmm. the actions of one of the members of the group of the team to the to the full team. So, you know, do you think that's how Craig's reasoning is working here? 
Um, maybe, but I don't think it can work analogously because <clears throat> the team in that sense is just an abstract label that is referring to the shorthand. It's like a shorthand way of saying all the different persons, right? Yeah. But on Craig's model, that's not the case because the Trinity is actual, real, concrete, individual thing. It's a real thing, right? And so that's why I don't think it's going to work because if it's just a mere abstract label, then yeah, theoretically you can do that. Like you can talk about the team in, in that way, but you can't talk about the Trinity in that way because the Trinity is an actual particular thing for Craig. It's a real concrete thing. Yeah. Right. So yeah, yeah I, I think it's going to be thing, which as you said, the divine persons derive their attributes from. Right. Yeah. So I think it's going to be difficult to try to, um, to try to do that. But, um, but yeah, so th here's the last argument uh, against um, Craig's position, which is called Leftow's Dilemma. Um, Brian Leftow in that same paper, Anti-Social Trinitarianism, <clears throat> he goes over this, and this is actually, this diagram was actually created by William Lane Craig in light of trying to now respond to Brian Leftow. So this is actually from him. Now, see at the top, uh, Trinity monotheism, that's just Craig's name for his model. Now, what this diagram tries to do is to show that Craig is going to be forced into one of these positions and they're all problematic, right? <clears throat> so let's just try to talk through the diagram. On the left side of the screen, you'll see the Trinity is a fourth instance of the divine nature. Well, if you take that option and you say that the Trinity is a fourth instance of the divine nature, then it's just going to turn out that there are four gods um, because even Craig himself admits to be an instance of the divine nature is to be a God. And so if you have, if the Trinity is a fourth instance of the divine nature, you're going to have four gods. Well, Craig's not going to want to say that. So yeah, you can just, take that. Yeah. yeah. So you can just X that out. Craig's not going to want to say that. Now <clears throat> go to the right hand, uh, hand side of the screen. The Trinity is not a fourth instance of the divine nature. Okay. Now you're going to have two options. Either the Trinity is divine or the Trinity is not divine. Well, if you say that the Trinity is not divine, it abandons Trinity monotheism. Because if you just say that the Trinity is not divine or the Trinity is not God, well, then you're just abandoning the theory to begin with. So you're not going to want to take that option. So you're going to say that the Trinity is divine. Well, if the Trinity is divine, then there's either one way to be divine or there are two ways to be divine. Okay? If there are two ways to be divine, that's going to result in what Brian Leftow calls Plantingian Arianism. And, and uh, Plantinga, which is where the, the first uh, term is derived from, is a philosopher that holds to social Trinitarianism. And uh, Brian Leftow is basically accusing him of a type of Arianism. And <clears throat> remember, I discussed briefly Arianism before. It's basically that um, because the Arians didn't necessarily have a problem with calling Jesus God. But what they had a problem with is that Jesus was God in the same sense as God the Father, right? And so what Leftow is saying is that if you take the route of saying that there are two ways to be divine, it's going to result in something like that in which the Trinity is divine in a way in which the persons are not, right? And there's going to be much more to say about this option in a second, but I'm just explaining what the view is. Now, um, if you say that there's one way to be divine, well, then 
either only the Trinity is God or only the Trinity is divine and the persons are not divine. Well, that's going to be problematic because Craig wants to say that both the Trinity and the persons are divine, right? So that seems like, well, that's not going to work. Or alternatively, only the persons are divine and the Trinity is not. Well, that's just going to go back to over here, sort of abandoning Trinity monotheism by saying that the Trinity is not divine, right? So both of those options don't seem like they're going to work. So which, which one of these options does Craig settle on? Well, Craig winds up saying, okay, Trinity is not a fourth instance of divine nature. He says the Trinity is divine. He then says that the, there are two ways to be divine. And he winds up actually settling on what Leftow calls Plantingian Arianism, in that there are two ways to be divine. And many Christians are going to have a problem with that because um, what Brian Leftow tries to point out is that it seems like the persons have a sort of derivative divinity because the Trinity, right, is ultimately which it, the Trinity ultimately is the one true God and it possesses or is an instance of the divine nature. And then the persons have certain qualities like aseity and necessity and these other attributes ascribed to God. Typically, they have them in sort of only a derivative sense um, in that they're parts of God. So somehow that quality gets attached to them. And Brian Leftow wants to say that that sort of derivative way of having divinity is problematic, right? And um, Craig simply just bites the bullet and just accepts it and then wants to deny that it is problematic, right? Um, so anyway, this is an argument that tries to force somebody who wants to, and this can really apply to anybody who says the Trinity is God, right? Anybody who thinks that the Trinity is an actual thing, which you're identifying God by, you can use this diagram to work through to see where they're going to wind up. And Craig himself winds up here, but just sort of bites the bullet on it. But, but, um, but I guess on Craig's model, um, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's like, why three, right? Because at the end of the day, if, it, you know, it, if someone were to tell Craig, okay, look, we know that you believe there are three persons, but hypothetically speaking, Hypothetically speaking, let's say you still have the Trinity, but you have 20 persons deriving mm -hmm. their attributes from that source. Would it still be mm -hmm. monotheism? You would have to say yes. Yeah, he would have to say yes. Yeah, which I think is absurd. And um, the question of why there are three, I don't think that there's a really good answer to that. Now, to be fair to Craig, he does try to, try to present his argument from love and this whole idea yeah of why you need to have, you know, multiple persons and then try to explain well, why you need to have three persons. But most people, not only uh, skeptics of, of Trinitarianism, but even most Trinitarians actually in the academic literature, they don't find this argument very good. Um, they, a lot of them reject this argument. So, yeah, if you pushed him, he'd probably try to make that move of why it needs to be three persons and couldn't be other than three persons. But I don't think he's successful in doing that. So it would just, I think, you know, the criticism you're giving now would go through in, in light of not being able to come up with an account for that. Um, so, yeah. Um, but that is um, Craig's Plantingian Arianism in which he opts for there being two ways to be divine. So presumably Trinity is God by exemplifying the divine nature and the persons are divine by being parts of God. 
And these are his words. I mean, he literally calls the persons or, or analogizes the persons as being parts of God in a similar way that uh, a skeleton is part of a cat, which, again, a lot of Christians are going to have a problem with uh, Craig's analogies. So it seems like what Leftow is trying to say is that the persons wind up having like some sort of degraded status on Craig's model. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it seems to me that the tr- tradition typically assumes that the persons fully possess the divine nature. I mean, even like when you say that Christ is uh, fully God and fully man, one person with two natures. It seems like typically the language that's used seems like, well, fully. Jesus was. Yeah, it seems like Jesus is an instance of the divine nature, right? I mean, he's fully doing an orthodoxy, right? I mean, um, yeah, you know, like describing each of the each of the persons as fully God, right? So it does seem to be going against the mainstream uh, Christian teachings here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that um that I, I, it also got me thinking about something else i mean i don't want to digress but you know i was also thinking yeah. because you you did mention how um you know you talked about ontological the ontological i guess um so subordination of the of, of the holy spirit and the son to the father in that that you know in that mm-hmm. uh that, that the son uh and that the father begets the son and that the holy mm-hmm. spirit proceeds forth from the father yeah. So it sounds like that you know the father is kind of like the the ultimate ontological source of uh, the son and the Holy Spirit. But now on Craig's model, it's like okay, let's go pretty much let's go a step back. It's like now you know, now the father is the one that's deriving his attributes from this Trinity. Yeah. It actually, with the point, actually, you could state it like this. It seems like on Craig's model the Trinity is actually begetting the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So the Trinity begets the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because typically um, the Orthodox position is that um, the begetting relation is like a dependency relation, like it's a asymmetrical dependency relation. So like the Father, I mean, the, the Son is dependent upon the Father in a way that the Father is not dependent upon the Son, right? And so it seems like, under Craig's view, the Trinity is more fundamental and the persons like subsist in the Trinity in some sense. Mm, mm, mm. And so it's almost like the Trinity begets the persons. Mm. And then in that case, the father isn't really begetting the son. It's the mm. Trinity that's begetting the son. And it's that the father in that case wouldn't be unbegotten. It's that the Trinity actually begets the father. Right. So, yeah, you, you've got yeah, a mean, lot of problems. Not, I mean, it's not precise, but, you know, uh, the way many Christians would speak about the Father, it appears that that's the way Craig is speaking about this impersonal trinity. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. I think that's right. So <clears throat> we talked a lot about, um, you know, thus far, uh, what the problem was historically. Then we went through discussing uh, a little bit about a mar- modern formulation of the problem. Uh, we gave a taxonomy of the two broad categories that possible solutions would fall under. And then we talked about specifically social Trinitarianism, which is the first possible solution. And then we took a look at uh, two models, uh, Richard Swinburne's and uh, William Lane Craig's model, and gave criticisms for each one of them. Now we're going to move on to the other category of possible solutions, which is relative identity Trinitarianism. Now, this one, 
<laughs> bear with me, folks. Um, if you haven't strapped in your seatbelt, yeah, I, I strap it in now. This one might get a little bit more technical, but I'll, I'll try to break it down uh, the best I can because it involves um, some issues with logic. Um, so what is relative identity Trinitarianism? Well, relative identity Trinitarianism um, basically, and, and how it's related to the LPT and how it tries to solve it is that it utilizes the is of identity in uh, premises one to three. So when it says that the father is God and the son is God and the Holy Spirit is God, it's saying that the father is identical to God and the son is identical to God and the Holy Spirit is identical to God in the same way that Superman is Clark Kent or Jake Brancatella is the Muslim metaphysician. The father is God because he is identical to God. So it claims that all of the three persons are identical to God, but the three persons are not identical to each other. So they still affirm that the father, son, and Holy Spirit are different persons. So they're the same God, but are different persons. Now, there are two types of relative identity Trinitarianism. And, and there are two camps. One is called the pure theory, and there's another version which is called the impure theory. But the point is how they are initially trying to solve the problem is they're trying to say that there's only one God because whatever that one God is, all three persons are identical to that one God. Okay? So there's one God, and the three persons are identical to that one God. Whatever the one God is, that's what the persons are. Okay. Um, now, the initial problem with that is, um, well, actually, let me go. Let me go a step further to explain a little bit more detail in, in what they're actually trying to say here with the, the the pure relative identity theory. So, the pure relative identity theory claims that what is known as absolute or classical identity is either false. Or unintelligible. It's just complete nonsense. Doesn't even make any sense. Well, in order to for us to really understand why they would say that, we have to understand first uh, what is being meant by absolute or classical identity. So, what absolute or classical identity is? It just refers to a relation that everything has to itself and nothing else. So, like when I say that Jake is Jake, or Jake is the Muslim metaphysician. I'm just saying that uh, I'm just referring to this relationship that I have to myself and nothing else. Nothing is Jake in the way that I am Jake. I mean, you know, there are other people named Jake, but they're not, they don't have the same relation that I have to myself, right? So A equals A uh, idea. Now, um, this is, I'm going to give a quote from the Stanford Encyclopedia entry on identity, um, which says, the view of identity just put forward, hence the classical view, sometimes it's called the classical view, characterizes it as the equivo equivalence relation, which everything has to itself and nothing else, and which satisfies Leibniz's law. So the way you can think about it is, imagine you have uh, two names for something, right? And you're trying to figure out whether or not these two names are just two names that refer to the same thing, or they're two different things. One way that you can try to investigate that is by seeing whether or not they have all of the same properties or uh, whatever's true of one is true of the other. And 
This basically gets at what's called the indiscernibility of identicals or Leibniz's law. And I'm just going to give a formulation of it, and then I'm going to give some um, concrete examples. It says that for any X and any Y, if X is identical to Y, then X and Y have all the same properties and vice versa, right? So, so <clears throat> if, if, if X and Y really are just one and the same thing, then whatever I can say is true of X, I can also say is true of Y, right? So if Jake Brancatella and the Muslim metaphysician really are just one and the same being or one and the same person, then whatever is true of Jake Brancatella is also going to be true of the Muslim metaphysician, right? And that's going to cash out for any example that you can give. <clears throat> and this is just standard basic logic um, that most people accept. And that's part of the problem with the model is that you would have to reject this account and say that, um, no, there's a possibility in which um, uh, something can be the same type of thing, but a, a different other type of thing. Uh, and what I mean by that is these individuals who affirm uh, pure relative identity trinitarianism they say this idea of leibniz's law is is nonsense it it's either false or doesn't even make any sense in other words we can't ask the question and i'll give a biblical example we can't ask the question if paul and saul are identical that question itself doesn't even make any sense well it seems to make sense to me because when i say it it's intelligible if i say it to somebody else they can know what it means are Paul and Saul identical? Meaning, are they really the same? Now, what the relative is, is, identity... Sorry to interrupt, but is this a fringe yeah. view? Um, um, it's very not, counterintuitive. I mean, uh, you're, you're basically asking whether two different names have the same referent, whether you're speaking about the same mm -hmm. individual, right? So, I mean, I could say... I can mention my father's name, and then I could say Basam's father, and then I could say are mm -hmm. Basam's father and whatever his name is the same mm -hmm. person. So what's what's so contradictory about that? What's so nonsensical about that? Yeah, it just seems obviously to make sense to me. So okay. um, yeah, in 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 from a logical perspective, um, yeah, it is it is considered a fringe view. It's not uh, it's no, not the standard a, account. Another important question though. Um, are the only people that hold this view people passionate about defending the Trinity or to be fair, is it also other philosophers who have nothing to do with this discussion? Um, there may be some outliers, but they're very few and far between. So very small amount, maybe that don't affirm uh, the Trinity that would even, you know, give this any consideration. Very few, I would say. Mm. <clears throat> So, um, yeah, it, it is definitely a minority view. Um, and we'll see that admittedly so from people who do hold the view that are Trinitarians in, in a second. Um, so they say we can't ask if Paul and Saul are identical. Well, that seems like, well, we can. So then it seems like the view already has a problem. Now, <clears throat> secondly... Way, to the listeners, uh, before Paul converted mm -hmm. to Christianity, his name was Saul. So... Just, uh, oh yeah, sorry. Yeah. That's yeah. That's that's important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Verification about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then, um, what they say is we can only discuss if two things are the same sort or same type of thing. In other words, are Paul and Saul the same human? Are Paul and Saul the same person? 
Are Paul and Saul the same apostle? Are Paul and Saul the same animal? They think that those questions are meaningful, and we can ask those, but we can't ask whether or not Paul and Saul are the same, or whether or not Paul and Saul are identical, or they don't think that we can ask that sort of thing. <clears throat> now, it seems obvious, given the examples even that you gave, we can ask those things. So what are these people talking about? Now, <clears throat> what are some problems for the view? We've already hinted at a couple. But um, some problems for the pure version of relative identity is that it's a rejection of classical logic or identity. Because part of the uh, package of classical identity, which affirms, you know, the three laws of logic, at least, um, identity, excluded middle, and non-contradiction, um, the way in which identity is cashed out is in terms of fulfilling Leibniz's law, right? And they're just rejecting basically a standard account of identity. And so they're rejecting uh, standard or classical logic. And most people aren't going to want to do that because they think that the way in which we speak, the way in which we describe things assumes such a relation as classical identity, right? And so people don't want to give give that up. I mean, uh, it, it just seems to uh, contradict everything that we, we've, we've been taught, everything that we experience. So most people don't want to give up a, a standard or classical account of logic, right? So I, I, I'd have a difficult time believing that they apply <clears throat> this theory in their everyday lives <laughs> outside. Yeah. Of your academic yeah, I, uh, papers and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they do. Um, so <clears throat> Another problem with it is it, it, it eschews or gets rid of what are sometimes in liter literature called uh, singular terms. So like proper names or another example would be uh, the 42nd president of the U.S., which is uh, was Bill Clinton, um, or even this yellow table. Now, this may be confusing, but I'll try to give an example. The reason why is, and, and it goes along with what you said <clears throat> in normal everyday examples, I couldn't refer to the 42nd president of the U.S. and Bill Clinton and say that, well, they're one and the same on this account. It wouldn't even make sense. Or even to use proper names like Matthew or John or Bill and say that they have a specific reference, right? Or this yellow table. You can't use singular terms on this account because singular terms don't even make sense on this account, right? There is no thing which is the 42nd president of the US and Bill Clinton, right? And, but it's just like, well, you, we use singular terms all the time. So what they do is they construct a certain logical quote unquote system in a formalized manner without the use of singular terms. And you can fit it so it's that it's internally consistent, but doesn't actually cash out in the real world because the way in which we speak isn't the way in which the logic is attempting to represent. And so there's a big conflict there. Um, another important point, which is in line with that is, this is merely like a linguistic solution. It's not necessarily a metaphysical account or metaphysical solution. What I mean by that, you can put the terminology in a non-standard logic and make it internally consistent with each other. But it's not actually a metaphysical account. It's just existing on paper. In other words, it doesn't explain to us how it actually could be the case in reality, right? Yeah. And so that's another serious problem 
for the model because we're concerned with like not whether or not you can write it on a piece of paper and not being contradictory by using non-standard or, uh, or non-classical account of logic. But at the same time, we're actually concerned with whether or not metaphysically speaking, this model is possible and makes sense in reality, not just yeah. like on, on a piece of paper, right? So that's another serious drawback for this, this view. It also seems rather ad hoc because of what you said. It's like, well, we don't talk like this. We don't act like this. We don't, um, we don't use logic in, in the way that they're putting forward here. And so it seems ad hoc or contrived in a way to try to just get the Trinity out of some logical problem because there's really no utility of it uh, for it outside of Christian theology. Okay. And then lastly, um, it seems to conflict. And this is a sort of a criticism that I've come up with um, uniquely. <clears throat> and I've asked other people about it. And uh, Bo Branson actually agreed with this. It seems to conflict with background assumptions of other Trinitarian doctrines. So one doctrine we've spoken about a little bit, at least in passing, is this doctrine of divine processions, which is the idea that the Father begets the Son, and the Holy Spirit is uh, either proceeds forth from the Father alone or from the Father and the Holy Spirit. And you have to understand one of one of them. And don't I hope the Christians don't attack me. I'm not saying that the doctrine was merely contrived just to avoid this problem. But one of the background assumptions uh, related to this doctrine is classical identity and classical logic. And I'll explain how. One of the problems early on, and it's actually represented in that same text by Gregory of Nyssa on Not Three Gods, after he starts explaining of how they're, they're one God, one way in which he tries to do it is say, they're one God because they all have the same divine nature. And then he brings up or anticipates a criticism, and he says, well, okay, we are saying that there's one God, but why aren't we saying that they're one person? In other words, what's the difference between the persons? Now. Typically, Christians believe that God created the world as a matter of choice. It was a free libertarian act on his part. In other words, he could have refrained from creating the universe, right? Most Christians want to have that view. And so if that's the case, you can't appeal to some accidental property or attribute that the persons possess with respect to creation because it's not necessary. In other words, you can't say, well, the way in which we know the difference between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is because the Son becomes incarnate and the Father doesn't, and the Holy Spirit um, is sent after the Son leaves, you know, the typical Christian story. You can't appeal to that because those aren't essential properties of or, or necessary properties of those persons, right? Because creation is not necessary. So what the Christians, and I have to give credit to, at least to the church fathers, they were thinking through some of these points. They're saying, well, if we want to say that the persons are different, we're going to have to appeal to something being different about them sans creation or apart from creation or before creation, right? Because creation is not necessary. You can't say that, well, they were the same and then they became distinct according to creation, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they want to say in eternity past, what was the difference between them? Now, what they wound up saying is the difference between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are these procession relations, right? And there's something like a dependency relation in which the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, 
and the Holy Spirit proceeds forth from the Father alone or from the Father and the Son. And why is that important? What's the relevance? Well, the assumption was if they shared all of the same properties as each other, then they would be identical. They just would be one thing. So in order to say that they're actually three persons and not one, they had to say there's some property that the father has that the son doesn't and vice versa, which means yeah, they were basically assuming. Not just functionally. Yeah. Right, right, right. So which basically means they were assuming classical identity, okay? Um, mm -hmm. So that's important that if you take uh, not only the doctrine of divine procession seriously, but you take the motivation for holding mm -hmm. that doctrine and the explanation or some of the background behind it seriously, yeah. then it's going to be the case that uh, from a historical perspective, the church fathers and the tradition, uh, it seems that they actually hold to classical identity or assumed it in uh, some of the other doctrines, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's going to be problematic for people that hold to the pure version of this theory. So, so yeah, it seems like in order to take the pure theory on, you're going to have to reject classical logic. You're going to have to reject uh, singular terms. It's also merely a linguistic solution at that point. It's not a metaphysical account of how it could be the case. It seems ad hoc because there's no utility for it outside of Christian theology. And it seems to conflict with background assumptions of other Trinitarian doctrines, namely the divine processions. So uh, most people, in light of those criticisms, don't actually hold to this view. Now, Peter Van Inwagen, who actually is a relative identity theorist, he says this, and I quote, a philosopher, a philosopher who denies the existence of classical absolute identity may find materials in the procedure I have outlined for an explanation of the fact that most philosophers and logicians have assumed that there is such a relation as classical identity. So he's admitting, look, this, this is like a complete minority view. Then he says, as far as I am able to tell, relative identity logic has no utility outside of Christian theology. Hmm. So it just seems like, well, oh, hold on a second. Has no utility outside of Christian theology. Now it seems like it's sort of contrived in order yeah. to deal with the problem. And again, we're not considered like you can make up any quote unquote logical system you want and make it internally consistent on paper, but does it have any application to the real world? No. So, I mean, who really cares? Right. Um, so Peter Van Inwagen is admitting this and at the end of his paper where he actually develops a version of relative identity logic, he says at the end, and this is like his summary statement. Even in this limited area of investigation, I have left the mystery of the Trinity untouched. It is one thing to suggest that is the same being as, does not dominate, is the same person as. And don't worry about that. He's just basically saying it's one thing to suggest that the persons can be the same being, but not the same person. It is another thing to explain how this could be. I have no explanation of this fact. If it is a fact, nor do I think that we could hope to discover one in this life in which we see only disordered reflections in a mirror. One day, perhaps we shall see face to face and know as we are known. In other words, he's basically saying, look, I've put together this relative identity logic. 
I can't even explain to you how this could be the case if it is the case. And there's no chance we could ever discover that in this life. And then basically says it's mysterious. Maybe we'll find out in the afterlife. Right. Yeah. So that's clearly not even confident about the validity of his own hypothesis. Yeah. In terms of its application, right? He's just saying, look, I've explained it on paper, but in terms of it applying to something mm -hmm. in reality, I have no idea how it would, like, how it would make sense. Um, so, so this is kind of the problem with, um, with uh, pure relative identity theories is because typically how identity would work would be this. If the father is identical to God and the son is identical to God, then it would follow by classical identity, namely Leibniz's law and what's called the transitivity of identity, that the father would be identical to the son. But that's just a heresy of modalism. So under classical identity, if you say father and son are identical to God, then it would father, uh, follow Sorry, that the father is identical to the son. Let me give an example from like, <clears throat> I mean, most of the audience probably took like some basic algebra. Imagine you have three variables, A, B, and C, and you say that, um, you say that uh, let's say C is equal to three. Let's use three for the trinity. So C is equal to three. And we say that A and B are equal to C, which is three. Well, what value would A and B have? Well, A and B would have the value of three because they're equal to, to C, right? Now, if A and B have the value of three and are equal to C, then that would mean that A and B must be equal to each other, which they obviously are because they're both three. In this equation, imagine that A and B are the father and the son and C is quote unquote God, whatever God is supposed to be. Well, if A and B are equal or identical to C and C is three, then A and B are both going to be three and it's going to follow by the transitivity of identity that they're identical to each other. <clears throat> so the problem is that even on the basic uh, formulation like that, mm -hmm. um, it, it seems like what the Christian is going to say is that A and B are actually equal to C, but they're not equal to each other. And that's just a contradiction on classical logic and classical identity. Right? So that's the cost of the view is you're going to have to say A and B equals C, but A and B don't equal each other. And that just fails like a basic account uh, of, of, of classical logic. So um, yeah, that's why most people are not persuaded by pure relative identity theories, because it seems like too much of a cost to really take on. Yeah. <clears throat> now uh, there is one last uh, view, which is called impure relative identity Trinitarianism. So that differs slightly in that they're not saying that the persons are strictly identical with God. And also they're, they're not identical with each other. However, what they are saying is <clears throat> you can have what's called numerical sameness without identity. And I'm going to try to unpack what that is. But basically what they're saying is, and this goes to the whole counting objection, that the persons can count as one God even though they're not identical. When typically the way in which we count is, if you have three things, the way in which you count that they're three things is because they're not identical to each other. There's a property that James has that John doesn't have 
and vice versa. And that's how we can count that they're each, um, uh, they're not the same, right? So they don't count as one, they would count as two or three. Now, <clears throat> what they're saying is no, there's a different way in which you can count where you can count them as one, even though they don't share the same properties, right? Now, one model of that is called the material constitution account, which is represented in the literature by Michael Ray and Jeffrey Brower. And <clears throat> they try to give an example that goes back to Aristotle, which is this example of like the lump in a statue. So imagine you have like a lump of clay. I'll just use clay, for example, but they use bronze, I think. Um, imagine you have a lump of clay and you take that clay and you form it into a statue, let's say. What they would say is the lump and the clay count as one thing because they're made of exactly the same material stuff, right? <clears throat> but the clay or the lump of clay has certain properties that the statue has, I mean, that the statue doesn't have and vice versa. So there's certain things that we could say that are true of the statue that are not true of the clay and vice versa. But we wouldn't say that they're two different objects because they're made of the same stuff. So they count as one, even though they're not identical. That's the example they use to try to get off the ground. But I'm going to critique the example in, in, in uh, a couple more slides later on. Um, I just want to give an overview as to uh, what the model is trying to get at and, and some of the models. Then you have something like uh, Bo Branson's model, which is called the unity of action model. And what she's going to say something like, well, the, they count as one God because they all perform the same actions. So it's not even just that there are three wills in the Trinity that always agree. It's quite literally that amongst the persons, there's only numerically one will such that all of the persons perform the same actions. And because they this, perform... Can, this, is, this is related to his functional monotheism, right? No, no, no. This is not, this is not related to... Bran like, Branson doesn't believe in functional monotheism. So, no, it's not related to that. It's related to um, the idea, uh, and we'll see it in a second, that he believes that the term God uh, refers to, like, an agent uh, noun. And so it refers to, like, an activity. And because all the same persons perform the same activity... Uh, the count is one God. That's the basic idea. Um, then you have something like what's called uh, uh, Scott Williams's indexical account. Um, and in, indexical is just a word that has a different referent depending on its context. Like, for example, the word I. So if I say that I am hungry and Bassam says that I am hungry, we're expressing the same sentence, but the referent or the indexical I has a different referent. One is referring to me and the other one is referring to him. Anyway, <clears throat> he goes through this and he tries to explain it in such a way that can make sense of how all of the same persons can still perform all of the same actions. And uh, I'm going to criticize that later on. Anyway, what's combined or what's, um, what's the uh, consistent property linking all of these different models together is that they all count by a relation other than classical identity, okay? So it's a different way of trying to count how there's only one God. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to go through each one of these models individually um, briefly and explain why I don't think they work. So Ray and Brower's material constitution model 
uh, uses the lump and the statue analogy to motivate the theory, which I already explained. You have a lump of clay and you have a statue and the lump and the clay, uh, I'm sorry, the lump and the statue have different properties than each other, but they're made of the same mysterious stuff. So they should be counted as one thing. Why do I think this fails? Well, first of all, even if I granted for the sake of argument that this supposed puzzle couldn't be solved in some other way, um, I think the analogy fails because God, at least on the Christian Trinitarian view, is not made up of material stuff, which would be analogous to matter, right? So they want to say that the count is one thing because the lump and the statue are made of the same matter. Well, what is playing the role of matter in the analogy when it comes to the Trinity? Because God is not made up of any material stuff that would be analogous to matter. So it seems like the analogy already is going to fail and doesn't really get off the ground, right? It just seems like it just falls uh, flat on its face. Another problem, which I don't have listed here on the screen, is that um, the lump and the statue have what's called the diachronic relation, uh, meaning they exist at different times. So when the lump exists, mm. the statue doesn't exist. The lump is formed into the statue. Mm. Whereas in the Trinity, there's a synchronic relationship, which means they all exist at the same time, right? Mm. So it's not like a lump at one time and then a statue later or yeah, like- I mean, There's no father. Meta metamorphosis, so to speak. There's no process of metamorphosis from- from one, you know, yeah. kind of entity to another, so to speak. Yeah, right. It's not like the father exists and then he becomes the son, yeah. or it's not even like the father exists and then the son later exists. Because even on the uh, begetting, they think it's an eternal relation. Now, whether or not that makes yeah, sense, I mean, there's no story. process of transformation anywhere. Yeah, no. So, it, so the point is, is that the analogy seems to fail on multiple accounts and it seems like how can we even if it did make sense on its own apart from god how could you apply it to god because he's not made of material stuff analogous to matter to play the role of the sort of morphine and also there is none of that even going on because the lump and the statue exist at different times but for father son and holy spirit they're all said to exist at the same time right so they don't have the same relation and for those reasons, and there are other sort of disanalogies between them, I think it's safe to say that the, the analogy, whatever it's meant to show, doesn't provide enough continuity between God and the lump in a statue example in order for it to really be helpful. Um, also, it's going to have a, another problem, which is uh, what I've called the problem of indexicals. So indexical is a, is a technical term that just means a linguistic expression whose reference can change based on the context. And I gave an example. Examples of indexicals would include I, he, she, here, that, etc. It's basically a word that can be used in a sentence uh, and even in the same sentence, but have a different reference. So why is this problematic for um, Trinitarians who want to affirm this model? Well, it's because the father cannot know things like the proposition, I am the son. It would be impossible for the father to know the proposition, I am the son, because if he were to know the proposition, I am the son, he would know something that's false because the father is not the son and vice versa. Likewise, even when the father knows I am omniscient and the son knows I am omniscient, 
the referent for I is a different referent. Just like if I know that I'm hungry and Basam knows he is hungry, right? We're expressing the same sentence, but the referent cannot be the same. Now, how is this related? Well, it shows that with the lump and the statue analogy, there's much more different between the lump and the statue, um, uh, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit than the lump and the statue, right? It's not just a merely, oh, they're made up of same matter, but they're like different, um, they're like different modes of the matter or anything like that. No, it can't be because they literally have different knowledge. Uh, they literally can say different things. And so there's much more that it seems like is different about them than merely the differences between the lump and the statue. But you could just back up a bit, Jake, because at the end of the day, <clears throat> when it comes to indexicals, right? So, so obviously, you know, the father can't say, um, you know, uh, I am the son who has become yeah. incarnate, right? Because mm -hmm. obviously, you know, he's the father, he's a different person from the son. And so the yeah. use of indexicals here appears to show that, you know, three persons do exist, but, but Rhea and, and Broward don't deny that, right? So they will say, yeah, Jake, we do agree with you. There are three persons. Mm -hmm. um, we are Trinitarians. And so the indexicals just demonstrates that there are three persons. So what mm -hmm. exactly are we refuting here? If we could just re try to remember what, what is it that we're trying to refute here with, mm -hmm. with the indexicals? Is it the, the single will aspect or... Because, you know, I, I don't see this proving anything other than the fact that there are three numerical persons, which I think they already affirmed, don't they? Yeah, but it, it's, it's not just that there's three numerically, uh, three numerical persons. It's that what the question is at the bottom, how can three persons be numerically the same spiritual object? How can they be the same spiritual object when they have such radically different properties? Meaning that one has the property of knowing something that the other doesn't know. How can three persons be the same spiritual being or count as the same spiritual being when they have such radical differences between them? It's just to show that when you start piling up the amount of different properties that each one of them possess, at what point does it turn over and you say, Oh no, they, they couldn't possibly be the same or they couldn't possibly count as the same. And I think it's enough to show that if you have three persons all knowing different things, willing different things, then they cannot count as the same thing. Is that clear or? Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> um, so yeah, that's, that's going to do it for Ray and Brower's uh, thing. I think the analogy doesn't get off the ground or too many disanalogies with it. Um, and then you have other problems that basically show that it's very difficult to see how there could be the same being or count as the same being, given that there's so many differences between them. Now, <clears throat> Dr. Bo Branson, um, who I've debated a couple times, uh, he has what's called the unity of action model. And so he wants to do the same thing. He wants to say that persons count as one God, even though they're not identical, but he has a different way of explaining why he thinks they can count as one God. What he says is that all persons perform the same type and token actions, right? So the distinction between type is that type would be something like a general category, and then token would be 
something like particular instances of that uh, category. And so what he's saying is that all the persons literally perform exactly the same action in every single thing that they do. Such that... Does that contradict the economic trinity, though? Or? Um, well, I mean, it, it depends on who you ask. I mean, for them, uh, no. I mean, they think that um, all of the persons perform the same actions. So there's only, to such an extent that numerically, there's literally only one will in the Trinity. There are not three wills in the Trinity, and the persons just kind of do the same things, or they all agree on what to do. It's literally such that numerically speaking, there's only one will, and they perform all of the same actions, literally every, same, every action. So Would that one will be rooted in the divine nature of the Trinity and then each person derives from it or yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you have right. three different persons, how can there be one will when a person is defined as having a mind and a will? Yeah. So they would, re they would reject that. They would say that will is a property of nature and not of person such mm. that because there's only one nature in the Trinity there's only one will in the Trinity. There's not three wills in the Trinity. And um, I actually, to throw them a bone, I do think that this is actually the historical um, position because when it comes to Christ in the incarnate state, the Orthodox position is that Christ had two wills. And their justification for that was that if he were to be fully man, then he would need to possess or uh, a full human nature and in order to possess a full human nature, he would have to have a human will. And so their assumption was that in uh, will is a property of nature and not of persons. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that because there's one nature in the Trinity, there's one will. And uh, because there's three persons doesn't mean that there are three wills. And, and because Christ was one person with two natures, he had two wills, not one will. Okay, so that's actually the orthodox position is to say that there's only one will in the Trinity. Now, a lot of people might find that shocking because a lot of times the way it's portrayed in the Bible, like whatever you think about the Father and the Son, yeah. whether, whether or not you think that they're God is irrelevant. It seems like they have two distinct wills, like they're not doing the same thing all throughout the stories in the New Testament, right? Like even Christ saying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Well, it seems like, well, hold on a second. There's a distinction between the wills. So it seems uh, like I, the biblical- I say my, not my will will be the, the new human will and your yeah. will will be the father's will, which is the same as the divine son's will. And which is pretty much kind of like saying, not my will, but, my will, My other will. <laughs> because the divine son's will is going to be the same as the father's will as well. Yeah. It's like saying not my human will, but my divine will be done. It's like yeah. not my will, but my other will. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but yeah, so um, like I'll, I'll give it to him in terms of, it seems to be the historically orthodox position, meaning like post, you know, once the Trinity has been established, that uh, there's only one will in the Trinity and that the church fathers actually thought to say that there are three wills in the Trinity or that the persons do different things is polytheism. They thought that that was just obviously polytheism. So I can grant them that, but then I want to grant the other side who are affirming three wills. Well, seems like 
whatever the father and son turn to be out in the Bible doesn't seem like they have the same will. And it doesn't really make sense to me to say that they could all perform the same actions. Now, um, also unique to Branson's model is that he wants to say that the term God refers to a specific type of activity. So it's like some type of divine activity or energy that the all, all three persons are engaged in. And not only are they all engaged in or that they perform it, that they literally perform the same action. So they're not three activities. There's only one activity in, uh, in the Godhead, according to this model. Now, the claim is that they, they count the persons. Incarnation then, right? Like, um, obviously, the Father didn't become incarnate. The Holy Spirit didn't mm -hmm. become incarnate. So what did he mean that all persons perform the same actions here? Yeah, so... Um, I think that it's, well, that's going to be one of my criticisms in the next slide. I don't okay. think that they really, yeah, I don't think they'd really have a good answer to that. Um, mm. so yeah, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to show all the instances in which they cannot be doing the same thing. And that's going to actually cast doubt on the theory, but yeah, the claim at least at this point anyway, is that they do all the same thing. And because they all do the same thing, um, they count the persons as one God because there's only one act that they perform. Um, and the claim is that when it comes to counting, they want to count the persons as one God in terms of uh, division instead of identity. Now, what I mean by that is that given the doctrine of what's called the perichoresis, which is that the persons mutually indwell one another, now, what that actually turns out to be is kind of utterly mysterious from my point, but they believe that the persons mutually indwell one another such that they're inseparable from one another. And because they're inseparable from one another, they're going to count as one God. And they want to say things like, well, if they can't be um, individuated by time and space and matter, then they're going to count as one. I'm, and they can't be counted as three or three gods. That's the claim. Um, but I'm going to analyze that and show why I think that contradicts their, their own method of counting in other areas. So what are some problems with Branson's model? Well, one immediate problem, given the doctrine of divine processions, is that the Father wills the Son and Spirit to exist. Well, if the Father wills the Son and Spirit to exist— how could the son have the same will as the father? In order for him to have the son will as the father, he would have to exist in order to will himself. But <laughs> that's not yeah. going to work. Because I mean, the, the spirit and the son have to beget the father <laughs> as well. And everyone has to beget each other, right? Pretty much. Yeah, it would, be, it would basically mean that the son is begetting himself, yeah. which is obviously not the position. So it seems like there's a problem within the doctrine of divine processions itself seems like a contradiction there. Another problem is uh, the problem of indexicals, which I mentioned before, that um, how could the Father, uh, Son, and Spirit all have the same will and all perform the same actions and all have the same knowledge if the Father, Son, and Spirit can obviously know different things? For example, the Father knows I am the Father, I but, am un. Sorry to interrupt you, but does yeah. Branson's model necessitate that they have the same knowledge of particulars, particular propositions? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So because I kind of I kind of understood that it only had to do with unity of action, not yeah having the same identical knowledge of particulars. Yeah. So so Branson on Branson's model, knowledge is considered an activity. Knowledge is considered knowledge is considered an energy. So if the persons take uh, part in all of the same energies and activities, Mm -hmm. and knowledge is considered an energy and activity then they'd have to have the same knowledge. So that's why the criticism is raised. And in yeah, fact, when I- One cannot know the proposition, I am the father, like how the father can know the proposition, I am the father. Right, and um, I brought this, and uh, I brought this criticism up to Branson in uh, a discussion with him. So like you said, um, some of this is, is tried and tested and people can go watch it. But when I brought this criticism up, he actually responded by saying, that's actually a really good objection. And it shows that you're tracking my model properly because you're bringing up a good criticism for it. And then his response during that discussion was to say, well, there's this paper and set of papers written by Scott Williams, and he attempts to deal with the problem there. And I recommend that the listeners go and check that out. In other words, he didn't even go into detail and trying to refute it. He said, it's a good objection. It shows you're tracking the model. Here's some guy that some academic that um, wrote on the subject and he attempts to respond to it there, but I can't really reproduce it now. And the people should go, go and check that out. Well, I've actually read the papers and I don't think um, Williams really solves the problem either, but that's another story, which we'll get to uh, maybe in a second. <clears throat> so, um, so yeah, uh, because they cannot uh, assert the same propositions because they can't know the same things. They can't perform the same actions and have the same knowledge and activity. Um, Another problem, which is something you hinted at and mentioned earlier, is that the Son alone becomes incarnate. Well, it seems like the second person of the Trinity is performing a unique action that the Father and the Holy Spirit are not, because the Son... seems like such a basic oversight. Uh, I mean, I just don't get how this could slip his mind. Oh no! I mean, well, he's, like a he's very aware of it. basic oversight, right? Like, uh, I feel like it's the first question that anyone would ask. Yeah. So, I mean, he 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 has asked it, I guess, and attempted to answer it, but I'm not persuaded by his answer. So, yeah. I brought this up to him as well in a discussion, and um, his response was something like this: He said, "Okay, Jake, imagine a person trying to put on a pair of pants." Okay, so in this case, the son is the one that's trying to put on a pair of pants. And you have two other individuals, the Father and the Holy Spirit, helping the son put on the pair of pants. And so that's supposed to be the analogy of the son becoming incarnate. Well, the Father and the the Holy Spirit are also performing an action in order to help the son become incarnate or put on flesh in the same way that you could have a person trying to put on pants and two people trying to help that person put on pants. We're supposed to understand his unity of action as entailing that not each person is performing the same exact identical task, but rather they're all contributing to the same action or end result in their own kind of way. Well, no, the, 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 he, he, he does believe the former that they are actually doing the same action. And my response is that the analogy actually demonstrates that they're not doing the same thing because one person is putting the pants on and the other person is having the pants put on him. 
meaning yeah. that it's still an end result that one guy has his pants on and the other two don't. So, um, so I don't think that the example actually works. Um, yeah. So my claim is that the persons cannot perform all of the same token actions because the father wills the son, the son doesn't will himself. They can't have the same knowledge and perform the same mental activities. Uh, the son becomes incarnate and the father and the Holy Spirit don't. Uh, and so in, in light of all of that, they cannot perform all of the same token actions. And because of that, there cannot be one will or one set of cognitive powers in the Trinity. There must be three. Now, my final criticism, even on this method of counting, even if we granted for the sake of argument this counting by division instead of identity, I'm saying that Branson is counting in an inconsistent fashion. Why is that? Because think about it. If the persons count as one God because they cannot be separated by time, space, and matter because they're, um, they're not, um, they can't be separated from each other, they're inseparable, cannot be divided, so they count as one, well then, why wouldn't we count them as one person? Because the persons themselves are inseparable from another, then it seems that if we counted by division, they would count as one person. But yet we count them as three persons. And going back to the issue before about the um, doctrine of divine processions, the reason why they count as three persons is precisely because they're not identical to each other, exactly. because they each have a property that the other one doesn't have. It's not because they're separated by time, space, and matter. So what my claim is, and even for somebody like Branson, who actually rejects divine simplicity, right? If you think that the attributes, if there are multiple attributes, the reason that you count them as more than one attribute is not because they are divided by time, space, and matter. It's because they are not identical to each other. Okay? So my claim is that if you count persons and attributes by identity, meaning that there are more than one because they're not identical to each other, and you're not counting by, by division, then it seems like within the Trinity itself, you're counting in an inconsistent fashion. When it comes to persons and attributes, you count by identity and not division. When it comes to counting gods, you count by division instead of identity. And in my opinion, because you don't want to say that there are three gods. Because if you do count by identity, then it follows that there are three gods, and Branson himself admits this. So it seems like an internal, inconsistent way of counting just because you don't want to count that there are three gods. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So um, just to uh, take a look at some aspect of uh, the, the historical part of this doctrine, because some people may say, well, well, Jake, the father is not beget uh, the father doesn't beget the son by his will. He begets the son by his nature. Don't you know that? Well, that's not what Gregory of Nyssa says uh, in his uh, book called Against Eunomius. And, and, and Branson's theory is actually uh, mostly based on Gregory of Nyssa. And he, he wouldn't have a problem with me saying that the son is produced by the father's will. So I want to give some historical um, evidence to show that this is the case. So in Gregory of Nyssa's work on, against Nomius, book, Eunomius, book three, he says this. And I quote, the immediate conjunction of father and son does not exclude the willing of the father. So it doesn't exclude the willing of the father as if he had a son without choice by some necessity of his nature. 
So it's not by the necessity of his nature. It is including choice and the will of the father. But neither does the willing separate the son from the father, coming in between them as a kind of interval. So we neither reject from our doctrine the willing of the begetter, so the will is involved, in reference to the son as if it were forced out, as it were, by the conjunction of the son's unity with the father. Nor do we in any way break that inseparable connection when we regard willing as involved in the generations. So, very clearly, and the point of me mentioning this quote is that for Gregory of Nyssa and many of the early church fathers, is that the son was produced by the father's will or by a will. It's not just by necessity of a nature as some like involuntary uh, begetting or emanation that is happening. Um, now, in line with that, Leftow, uh, Brian Leftow raises a similar criticism, and he mentions this with respect to Scott Williams, but Scott Williams's model is very similar to Branson in this aspect. So he says, and I quote, again, orthodoxy has it that the father begets the son. In Williams's proposal, not just the father, but the son does the begetting, and the son, and so the son brings himself to be, meaning that the son begets himself. Further, Presumably, the father begins the son intentionally, which I just showed there is an intention and a choice and a will involved in the action. So the father intends to beget the son. And so in Williams's proposal, the son intends this too, causally before he exists. It just seems contradictory. It just seems contradictory to say that the son intended to will himself causally uh, before he existed. It's just contradictory. Williams can avoid this and like impossibilities only by denying the Trinitarian processions. So, his view is either impossible or, again, theologically unacceptable, meaning he could avoid it by denying the divine processions, but that's Trinitarian orthodoxy. So, either his model doesn't work, so either it's impossible or it's going to be heretical. <clears throat> now, um, William Hasker uh, and Scott Williams are both Trinitarians, but Scott Williams believes there's only one action and one uh, will in the Trinity. And William Hasker is a Trinitarian who says, no, there are three wills in the Trinity because a lot of the same problems we're already bringing up. So but, Scott Williams is similar to Branson? <clears throat> yes, yeah. And uh, William Hasker is against him. He's saying, no, there's got to be three wills in the Trinity. Um, and so they've gone back and forth over the past 10 years, like 10 different papers. I'm not even exaggerating on this specific point. And, um, but I, did wanna, I do want to ask you, uh, so historically yeah. speaking and contemporary uh, in our contemporary times, yeah. the, the position that there are three wills, um, mm -hmm. how popular is it historically and I've, contemporary mm -hmm. times? I think historically it's um, it's a fringe view at best. I think the orthodox view is clearly that there, historically speaking, that there's only one will in the Trinity, and uh, I can demonstrate that. I mean, I I didn't bring slides for that, but maybe another time. Um, I think it's very clear that there's only one will in the Trinity, and that the Church Fathers actually think for there to be three wills in the Trinity is actually polytheism. Um, <clears throat> so they have a big problem with that. However contemporary times um i i would i haven't done like a survey on it so it'd be hard to say but um i don't know uh i i think I, they're I think both represented the, 
I think when it still comes to the denominations at large, yeah. uh, they're, they're still sticking to the one will, but I guess there's a growing number of academics are agreeing with Hasker, <coughs> or is Hasker still on the front yeah. line? <clears throat> yeah, I think there, there's a growing number that see it as three wills, and that's primarily because uh, a lot of the academic literature on the subject, um, I don't want to say dominated, but to a certain extent, the majority of them are Protestants writing on the subject. And um, so they're more likely to uh, go against tradition. In other words, if they think it's unbiblical, uh, they don't necessarily feel beholden to accepting certain councils, especially later councils, or even uh, certain aspects of the Trinity that are not explicitly mentioned in uh, creedal statements. Um, but there are creedal statements that do specifically mention there being one will or one power in the Trinity. And Scott Williams uh, mentions this in his papers against Hasker. He actually brings up the historical uh, data and says, well, dude, you're, you're kind of out of the, uh, out of orthodoxy with this. And, um, and Hasker is trying to resist that. So that's obviously an interpretive dispute, but I think Scott Williams is actually correct on that. So I would get, agree with Scott Williams's analysis historically that the church fathers and the creedal statements seem to affirm one will. However, I would agree with William Hasker's criticism of Williams that it seems very difficult to defend that position given other Trinitarian commitments, meaning the fact that they're three persons, that they don't have the same knowledge, that the son becomes incarnate and the father doesn't, uh, that the father wills the son to exist in terms of him eternally begetting him and that the son doesn't will himself. Um, so, yeah, I would agree with both of their criticisms, but from different aspects, if that makes sense. Great, great. Okay, so um, with respect to this idea of the indexicals, Scott Williams says this in a paper, and I quote, The divine persons are aware of different propositions if they use a mental token with the indexical I in it. In other words, if they uh, are aware, if they affirm or they assert a proposition with the indexical I in it, for example, I am the Father, or I am unbegotten, or I am omniscient. Uh, Scott Williams admits that the persons are aware of different propositions. Now, to me, that's just to concede the, the, the debate at that point. And William Hasker agrees, commenting on this exact passage. Yeah, he I mean, says I mean, this. It's not, it's not only the first person uh, pronoun, it could also be the second person, right? Like, he is the Father, right? Like, so. Yeah. The father can't Correct. say that second person. Right, right. He can't say it in a first person way, right? It's, it's, it wouldn't make sense. Yeah. So William Hasker says, quote, the persons are able to grasp and to assert propositions containing indexicals. But here's the rub. To be aware of a proposition is precisely to perform a mental act. And we have been told that in this instance, the persons are aware of different propositions, meaning He's referring that Scott Williams is admitting that uh, the persons are aware of different propositions, which must surely mean that they are performing different mental acts. Right. What could be clearer than that? And, it, and if this is so, it cannot be the case that the persons have between them only one set of divine mental powers and only one set of divine mental acts. And Basically, I agree with that. Basically, saying that you can't just say that each of, that there are three minds, uh, mm -hmm but one will because each of the minds are having different mental acts and to perform those mental acts, you must have a separate will to do so. 
Uh, yeah, but it's worse than that because people like Scott Williams and Branson believe that there's only not only one will, but there's only one mind in the Trinity. And so Williams is saying you can't have one mind or in his words, one set of mental powers. See, it's mm -hmm. notice it says one set of divine mental powers and one set of m divine mental acts. So what he's saying is there cannot be one mind and one will in the Trinity in light of Scott Williams admitting that they're aware of different propositions because he says to be aware of a, well, I was a proposition. Assuming, well, I was assuming this whole time um, when, it, when it comes to the one will view is that there is an affirmation of three minds, no, but no. one will. Because, I mean, if you, okay, fine. So we, okay, so the will is part of the nature on that one will view. But how can you say there are three persons if you're not going to affirm three minds? I mean, at the end of the day, what is the distinctive feature? What are the distinctive features that are differentiating the three persons from each other if it's not three separate minds then? Yeah, well, no, for them, and quite radically speaking, the only difference between the persons are the divine procession relations. So this is what they, uh, they call the idiomata, um, or the peculiar qualities that each one of the persons possess is only with respect to the divine uh, processions. So the father is the father because he's unbegotten and he begets the son. So those are two different qualities. Also a third quality that he begets the uh, Holy, uh, sorry, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from him. Um, and then you do the same thing with the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the only properties that differentiate the persons from one another are the divine procession relations, not any of their activities, not their wills, not their minds, nothing. All of that is identical. The only difference are the processions. That's the seems, that's the It seems position. like Hasker is doing a good job laying bare just how absurd that is. Yeah, I think it and, and and see even that position that tells you how crucial it was to establishing the, the doctrine of divine processions and why they assumed mm -hmm. classical identity. Because if they believed that everything else were the same in all of these other aspects, well, why did they need that doctrine? They needed it because they needed to point to for them the smallest sliver of difference between the, the persons, and it had to be an eternal difference, right? So that also kind of uh, bolsters the point that if you don't have these other things to appeal to, at least from their perspective, of the differences, they had to appeal to that, and, um, and hence why you know that doctrine is assuming that they affirmed classical identity. They didn't reject it. So... Um, but yeah, I mean, I just agree yeah, with Pastor, I mean, but I don't I think mean, the position is defensible. It's mind-boggling uh, how, how, how they could just affirm one mind <clears> and <throat> they feel that these different persons are just, you know, proceeding at different levels, but mm -hmm. still sharing in that one mind. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just uh, not making sense. Yeah, I mean, I, how could they know things that the other one can't know? I mean, they have what's called they say knowledge or like personal private knowledge that the other person that are, that are incommunicable that they can't share. Right. So even given the doctrine of perichoresis in which they mutually indwell one another, whatever that means, they can't mutually indwell one another to extent that they have all the same knowledge because of this problem of indexicals. So that's why it's, it's very key into... 
um, showing how a lot of these impure theories are not going to work. Right. right. So, um, so yeah, I think Hasker's criticism is, is spot on with that. Now, again, to be fair, Williams and Hasker have been going back for 10 years. People can read the literature for themselves if they want. I don't think um, I'm not persuaded by Williams's response to any of this stuff. I think in that section right there, he's already conceded the debate. So capping off then um, the problems for the impure relative identity theory uh, are numerous. One, they rely on extremely controversial metaphysics or, or metaphysical theories, some of which we are just discussing. Well, how could they have the same mind and will and get all these differences? It doesn't make sense. Um, also, we count by identity in ordinary life, the way in which we count things, uh, even taught from elementary school onwards. We count by identity. Um, and if we count by identity, then there would be three gods. And Branson just simply admits this, and pretty much everyone else does. So if we count by identity and that's true, then it follows that there are three gods. Um also, inconsistent counting methods, which I pointed out, the way in which they count persons is by identity, and it's not by division or separability, and the same thing with the attributes. They're counted by identity, but then when it counts, comes to counting gods, you count by division. Why? Because you don't want to utter that there are three gods. And, you know, to take it from an Islamic perspective, I think this is actually telling uh, with respect to the fitra, because they don't want to verbalize that there are three gods. They want to do anything to say there's only one God, right? Even though their model seems to entail or imply that there actually are three gods or there are three gods, right? So um, for me, it's quite telling and it seems rather contrived that you have one way of counting persons and attributes within the Trinity itself. Like it could be said, oh, if you wanted to stretch it, well, we count like this way for creation, but we there's like the spiritual math where we count differently for God. Like, I wouldn't be persuaded by that, but if you wanted to say that, okay. But then no, within the Trinity itself, we count persons by identity and we count attributes by identity, but then when we count gods, we don't count by identity because you just don't want to verbalize that there are three gods. I mean, it seems obvious to me. Um, so it seems contrived. And um, there's a quote here from Branson, which in a paper, he admits exactly what I said, that we do count by identity. So he says this, and I quote, today we count Fs by one, logical subjects that are two, discernible from, or at least not identical to one another, and are and one another and are F. That is, if X and Y differ in any way and are both F-ish, we count them as two Fs. So if I were to translate that last sentence, that is, if X and Y father and son differ in any way, which they do even minimally on Branson's model, father's unbegotten, son is begotten, and are both F-ish, meaning are both divine or are both God, we count them as two Fs, two gods. So he's admitting, and he's admitted other, elsewhere that, well, yeah, if you count by identity, you have three gods. So, and that's, I'm just saying, and he admits here today, we count by that way. Yeah. He's admitting that's how we count by today. So it's going to follow that today now he wants to, follow. yeah right and so but he wants to argue and this is his whole thing that the ancients historically they counted by another method they didn't count by identity that this is some modern thing that's a whole nother can of worms uh which i'm happy to dispute but the fact of the matter is he's saying today we count by th this method and if we count by this way 
then there would be three gods. Well, then today we would say that there are three gods. Simple as that. Um, <clears throat> now, that basically sums up the problems for the impure relative identity theories. Now, I've gone through social Trinitarianism, explaining what it is, uh, two different models from that, um, one being uh, Richard Swinburne's model and Craig's model, explaining the problems with that. Then I explained what the uh, relative identity theory says, the pure theory versus the impure theory, and explained the problems with both of them and some distinctive models. Now, that basically encapsulates all of the... Uh, the different options that the Trinitarian can go through in terms of broadly speaking. Now, of course, there are going to be different types of social Trinitarianism and impure theories. However, uh, it's going to be the case that most of these criticisms are going to refer to those models in one way or another anyway. Now, the point there at this point is, if you're not persuaded by any of those models, and you think that the criticisms I've raised against them are good, then you're not going to think that uh, anything else is going to solve the LPT. Now, there's one other option, or actually two, that I'm going to get to. At this point, somebody can say, okay, Jake, well, you've actually shown what the problem is. It's really a serious problem. You've also shown that possible solutions don't work. But maybe it's just a case that the Trinity is a mystery. And uh, so the idea may be something like, well, it looks like a logical problem. There is no solution that we can come up with, but it's not actually a contradiction, even if we can't show you how. Maybe they want to say something like that. So let's evaluate that claim is, is the Trinity a mystery? Well, if we want to evaluate whether or not the Trinity is a mystery, we need to understand what is meant by the term mystery. So Dale Tuggy. Uh, identifies five uses of the term mystery in the literature. And I'm using his sort of taxonomy here. So one way that mystery has been defined is one, a truth formerly unknown and perhaps undiscoverable by unaided human reason, but which has now been revealed by God and is known to some. Now, I believe that this is actually the biblical definition of the term mystery. And if you look at the way that the, uh, that, um, the Apostle Paul um, uses the term mystery, and even in the Old Testament itself, um, is that a mystery is something which was formerly unknown, but now is known because it has been revealed by God. That's typically how the term mystery is used throughout the Bible, and that's not really a controversial claim on my part. Now, uh, the second way that the term mystery can be defined is something which we don't completely understand, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. Third is some fact we can't explain or can't fully or adequately explain, right? So it might be something that we understand. Yeah, similar to number two, but maybe the difference is something like um, we understand it, but we can't explain it, um, <clears throat> something like that. And then fourth would be an unintelligible doctrine the meaning of which can't be grasped. So it's basically you affirming sentences, right, uh, regarding the doctrine, but you don't even know the meaning, right? So you're just affirming uh, something of which you don't know the meaning. And then the fifth way would be or uh, a truth which one should believe in, though it seems, even after careful reflection, to be impossible and or contradictory and thus false. 
presumably the idea would be something like, well, we do understand the meaning of the terms, and it looks like a contradiction after careful reflection, um, but it's not, even if I can't tell you how it's not. Okay, so those are the five ways that the term mystery is used. Now, I'm going to show um, that there are two types of mysterianism that are represented in the literature. One is called negative mysterianism, and the other is called positive mysterianism. So negative mysterianism or negative mysterians claim that the Trinity is a mystery in the sense that it is an unintelligible doctrine, the meaning of which cannot be grasped. So that's going to refer back to the fourth um, meaning uh, here, an unintelligible doctrine, the meaning of which can't be grasped. Now, Dale Tuggy comments on negative mysterianism, and he says, and I quote, opponents of this sort of mysterianism object to it, meaning people who don't accept uh, negative mysterianism, this is their critique. They object to it as a misdirection, special pleading, neglect of common sense, or even deliberate obfuscation. They emphasize that Trinitarian theories are human constructs and that they're a disoratum or any, uh, sorry, uh, of any theory is cl clarity. So any aspect of a theory is, ha is going to have to be that it's going to have to be clear, right? So that's the claim. He says, we literally cannot or can't believe what is expressed in Trinitarian language if we don't grasp the meaning of it. And to the extent that we don't understand a doctrine, it cannot guide our theological beliefs, our actions, or our worship. So the criticism of negative mysterianism is like, well, how are you even affirming this doctrine, which you can't literally understand the meaning of it? If you can't understand the meaning of it, what are you actually affirming? How are you assenting to believe in something that you don't know the meaning of, and it is a central doctrine of your faith? It's not like some, you know, obscure or like side uh, or secondary or tertiary issue. It's like fundamentals of the Christian faith is to affirm the Trinity, and you don't know the, the meaning of it? Like, how are you affirming that doctrine when you don't understand it? And how can it guide your theological beliefs, action, and worship? Like, what are you worshiping? How do you, how do you call out to God when you don't know what you're referring to? It just yeah, so seems guess, a bit strange. It's not just simply saying, can you accept something you don't understand? Because, like, for example, like we, we read in the Quran, you know, the, the huruf and muqatta, like alif, lam, meem. So, you know, mm -hmm. scholars have always deliberated, like, what is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, ultimately intending by these letters? And there's different theories, but... At the end of the day, mm -hmm. we accept that Allah Ta'ala has uh, uttered them, and we say, you know, Allah Adam, inshallah, in the afterlife, we, we may find out. But mm -hmm. here, when it comes to the Trinity, there has, because it's a central doctrine, it's a central tenet, and you have to affirm an, a positive belief in it, you're going to mm -hmm. have to ascribe some meaning to it of sorts. Right. Uh, so it's not just simply saying, okay, the Bible teaches that we must believe in the Trinity and therefore I will just trust that that is something that God says is important for us, mm -hmm. you know, to, to believe, but no, you actually have to positively believe in it. So we don't positively believe mm -hmm. in, a, we don't ascribe a meaning to the huruf and muqatta in the Quran and therefore, mm -hmm. but we do accept that Allah uttered it, 
Mm -hmm. But in the Trinity, you can't say the same thing, right? So I, I guess you can accept or believe in something, I guess, that you may not fully understand. But I guess over mm -hmm. here, it, it involves affirming um, something that you don't understand and, and claiming to believe in it. it so I guess... Yeah. Yeah, and it couldn't guide, like, um, in the case of, like, Aleph Lam meme, it doesn't guide our theological beliefs and our actions, right? Like, we don't, because of Aleph Lam meme, we don't, like, it's not, like, instructing us to do anything in that yeah. sense, right? Yeah. right? It doesn't guide our worship in that aspect. And We just trust um, that Allah, Allah uttered it, right? And, yeah, you yeah. know, and then, inshallah, we may find out what he intended by it in the afterlife. Um, right. Right. Trend. Now like yeah, now like if if Alif Lam Meme was supposed to be like a definition of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then then that would be a problem because it would be like, well, this is supposed to be definitional of who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, and we have no idea what it means. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the analogy is that this is Trinity is definitional of who God is, and we have no idea what it means. Like how do you how do you worship such a being so um so yeah a lot of people even most mysterians to be fair i don't think they fall under this category i think they fall more so in the second category which is uh positive mysterianism so positive mysterians claim that the trinity is a mystery in the sense that it is a truth which one should believe in though it seems even after careful reflection to be impossible and or contradictory and thus false, which is uh, the fifth meaning of the slide here. So a truth which one should believe, even though it seems even after careful reflection to be impossible and or contradictory and thus false. Um, so what, uh, what positive Mysterians will typically appeal to are things like God's incomprehensibility that, you know, uh, God as the creator of everything, we can't completely comprehend who he is, right? So there's no surprise as to why we're running into some sort of problem, but it's not due to who God actually is. It's based on us not being able to comprehend him, right? And then they'll couple that with things like analogical predication, uh, which analogical predication, simply put, is just basically the idea that when we use a certain term for God, like when we say that God is uh, knowing, right? That has an aspect of similarity when we say that with uh, a human is knowing, but there's also an aspect in which it's different, right? So that's what analogical predication means. Now, because of that, they're then presuming that the aspect in which there's a different, that's the part that's unknown and we cannot really fully comprehend that. And maybe that's what's causing the problem in setting up this contradiction, right? So uh, James Anderson, um, who wrote this text, which is called Paradox in, in Christian Theology, a good book I'd, I'd recommend, actually. Um, he, he represents the positive Mysterian uh, point of view. And he basically admits almost everything I've said thus far look, here's what the logical problem is. Um, all of these, he actually goes through all of these solutions, both when it comes to the Trinity and incarnation, he does the same thing, explains why none of them really work. But then at the end says, we should still believe in it. And, you know, he has reasons to try to be fair. Well, 
he thinks that the scripture teaches it, maybe tradition teaches it, maybe, I don't know, some type of special revelatory experience. And he tries to give an epistemological account of why a Christian can still be justified in believing it, even though there's no answer to this problem, right? That's that's basically the positive uh, Mysterian account. But what are the problems with positive Mysterianism? Well, first of all, it's not a solution to the LPT. It's actually just admitting that there doesn't seem like there is a solution, at least on this side of heaven, to the LPT. It also requires sophisticated epistemological considerations that most lay people are not going to be familiar with. And in that case, it seems difficult that if a Christian is presented with the LPT and they don't have an answer to it, it doesn't seem like they would be uh, justified in holding that position uh, because they're not going to be able to spell out these epistemological considerations that maybe Anderson would. And anyway, that's a whole other can of worms, but I don't, I don't think um, he's successful in doing that. But that's another question. Now, another concern is, how do we actually identify what an actual contradiction is? Meaning to say, well, if it looks like a contradiction, it smells like a contradiction, it tastes like one, maybe it actually is a contradiction. Um, whereas uh, 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 Anderson, I'm sorry, Anderson is saying here that, well, it looks like a contradiction, definitely does. Nobody solved to show how it's not a contradiction thus far, but it's not an actual contradiction. So the question for Anderson would be, what is the criteria? When do we actually establish what is an actual contradiction from merely an apparent one? And what yeah. is a criteria that we could actually use consistently to apply that to everything in, in, in terms of what we believe, our experience, etc. Right. And I think that's a difficult question for him to answer. And um, lastly, what they're actually saying here is God is not, or the Trinity is not actually contradictory. contradictory. It's not actually truly a logical problem. It's a logical problem from our vantage point, but theoretically, there actually is a solution. Like, we're not going to get on, uh, get to heaven and find out, well, the Trinity actually is a contradiction. It'll make sense there, basically, or maybe, anyway. Um, that's the claim. Well, my claim is, if that's the case, why would God leave us without a solution? If theoretically there actually is a solution to the problem, why would he reveal the Trinity and then not provide us with an adequate solution to the problem. It seems like he kind of just left us, you know, throwing our arms up. And, and yeah, I mean, it has to be stressed that this is not a peripheral doctrine, right? You know, right. I mean, it's just so central to the Christian faith. Right. Uh, you know, for, for God to um, supposedly uh, reveal himself in such a manner whereby he also created, he is the creator of our minds and what we're able to fathom, that he would mm -hmm. reveal himself in a matter, in a manner in which he created our minds unable to grasp or even feel inclined to resist this revelation mm -hmm. because it, it just appears to be so self-contradictory. Right, um, it, yeah. It's extremely problematic why God would not create us with the ability, at least with the ability, to grasp how he is revealing himself to us, not to fully comprehend um, mm -hmm. uh, him, but to at least reach a stage where we say, okay, fine, at least this is not contradictory. 
and yeah. uh, and you know, uh, and you know, uh, and I'm willing to have faith in the rest of in the rest of it, mm-hmm. in the rest of it, right? And we can find out more in the afterlife. But no, it's like it's so central to the faith, and mm. it just appears like a clear cut contradiction, uh, according to everyone, pretty much, right? And right. I mean, so even he's saying it here. Theologically problematic. That is so theologically problematic. It's just so yeah. difficult to understand, you know, why, uh, how, uh, uh, I fail to grasp how people could just so easily, I don't know, brush this, uh, you know, sweep this under the rug, so to speak. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just problematic. Yes, definitely. Now there's, there's one last uh, theory and, and it, it is, and Christians uh, who watch this, I hope won't be upset with me, but I'm just trying to cover all bases because there are some, small number of people um, who take this position, and that's J.C. Beale's contradictory theology. He's an academic, okay, um, he's a logician primarily, but he's written a little bit on um, theology, and he's written a text on the Incarnation, and I think he's working on one with the Trinity where he's trying to apply the same theory. Um, but he agrees with everything Anderson said, but except he's going one step further. He's, and he's agreeing with everything I said and going one step further than Anderson and, um, um, and, and well, my difference with him is going to be something else, and, and you'll see in a second. But what he is saying, he's saying, look, this is a logical problem. Anderson's right. There is no solution, logical solution to the problem. However, Anderson's wrong. It's not just merely an apparent contradiction that we don't know how to solve. It's actually a real contradiction. It's a true contradiction, right? And so his position is the Trinity and incarnation are actually true contradictions. So they both express things that are true and false at the same time, and we accept it. That's basically the idea. Now, well, isn't the fideism, uh, I think Kierkegaard and other philosophers held to this position that they've actually embraced contradictions uh, in, um, in their beliefs. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, so JC Beale as a logician, um, for whatever reason, he is persuaded that contradictions actually exist, even apart from um theological issues, and then he wants to try to take that and apply it to theology as well. But um, yeah, there have been some Christians who have taken this view, but it's kind of like a fringe view. A very small number uh, have Wasn't taken this view. An early church father who said, I can't remember the name. Uh, it's very famous. I believe I forgot his name, but that basically he's he embraces <laughs> these Christian beliefs because they are stupid. And he actually used that word. Oh, I'm not sure. I, I'm yeah, 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 probably, uh, I'll, I'll try to yeah. Google it while you're speaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So. What I would say is, uh, to be critical of this, is that it seems to be ahistorical. doesn't seem like uh, the early church fathers actually accepted true contradictions, right? Because all the time they were trying to, um, at least attempting to explain their theology in a coherent manner. Now, whether or not they were successful is is another story, but they were at least attempting to. Also, uh, one that's really obvious is it rejects classical logic. It says that true contradictions can exist in reality, and not just in reality, in the highest form of reality, which is God himself. God himself actually is a literal contradiction, right? 
I mean, that's quite shocking. Most people are going to say, okay, have a nice day, J.C. Beal. And maybe most Christians are going to do the same thing. So um, that's why they may be upset of even me presenting a fringe view, but I just wanted to cover all bases. And, and then lastly, similarly for James Anderson, but in a slightly different way, if true contradictions exist, seems difficult to apply this theory consistently. I mean, what is a true contradiction? Um, when can we accept that true contra contradictions exist? Because they do exist. Well, when is it okay to accept them? And when is it okay not to accept them? Right? Seems also very difficult to apply this theory consistently. And for all of these reasons, um, most Christians are not going to even take a second look at this type of idea. Um, oh, by the way, I, was, I mean, I just quick, yeah, go ahead. And, and I think, you know, uh, I believe yeah. because it is absurd, um, is famously attributed to, to, to Tertullian. And, uh, you know, and, and I guess a lot of Christians appeal to that. And I was just reading in another source that it may have been misattributed to him. But it is popul popularly attributed to, to, to Tertullian um, mm -hmm. that, you know, that he said, I believe because it is absurd, right? And, and right. throughout my years discussing with Christians, like they would always appeal to the statement to basically say, I think in even one of my public debates uh, that I had like, uh, you know, uh, a while, mm -hmm. uh, a long time ago, that basically say that when it comes to the doctrines of the Trinity and the incarnation, yet the fact that they, that they are absurd uh, is, mm. is, is actually a, a, a testament to their pretty much their divine um, origin yeah speak because mm. God is not meant to be comprehended right yeah uh, but this is like another level because it's not this is saying it's not just com not comprehended it's just literally contradictory I mean that's just, that's just another level so um, yeah most people are not going to be happy with that so <clears throat> All in all, how, how does that end? Well, James Anderson, who I mentioned, you know, uh, from this book, uh, it's called Paradox in Christian, Theo uh, Christian Theology, uh, where he goes through uh, the entire section on the logical problem of the Trinity, explains what the problem is. He explains proposed historical solutions to the problem and all the way up to contemporary times. And then he, and he knocks them down one by one and he caps off by saying this, and I quote, as the debate stands today, no writer from the first century to the 21st century has offered an explication of the doctrine of the Trinity that is both clearly orthodox and free from apparent contradiction. It seems that the careful theologian inevitably faces a dilemma, that of embracing either paradox or heterodoxy. So basically the problem is either you've got the logical problem or you've got heresy. To try to avoid the logical problem, you have to take a heretical position or a position that's going to uh, invite some other type of criticism. And he concludes that there has been no successful logical solution to the problem that doesn't fall into heterodoxy or some other type of problem. So um, that's my position. But then I just go one step further than Anderson and say, well, it doesn't merely just look like a contradiction. Nobody solved it in over 2,000 years or uh, whatever it's been at this point. Uh, well, from my perspective, maybe like 1,600 plus years. But um, anyway, nobody solved it in so many years uh, that it doesn't look like there's a solution to it. So we should just admit 
It's a contradiction. There is no solution to it. However, unlike J.C. Beal, who admits and goes a little bit further than Anderson admits, yeah, Jake, you're right. Nobody solved it. It is actually a contradiction, but it's a true contradiction. I want to say, no, sorry, J.C., uh, you're right. Nobody solved it. It is a contradiction. And because it's contradictory, is therefore not true. So <clears throat> I want to give just a very brief summary of uh, this very long presentation. <laughs> but if you've made it thus, this far, then, um, uh, you know, may God reward you for that. Um, so the summary of what we went through, we, I went through briefly a genesis of the LPT, uh, where it sort of originated from. I explained that it's not a problem initially raised by skeptics, uh, nor is uh, nor is it uh, a problem raised by Muslims in, in the seventh century onwards. No, it's a problem that was initially raised by Christians within their own community and goes back all the way to the earliest uh, sort of iterations of the Trinity itself. Now, then I went on to explain or uh you know, give a modern formulation of what the problem is by people like Richard Cartwright with those seven premises. I explained that Arianism and modalism are deemed heretical, so they're not actually uh, solutions to the LPT, because if you take them, then you'd no longer be embracing the Trinity. I then gave a taxonomy or categorized the different available proposed or potential solutions to the LPT, which are basically reduced to social Trinitarianism or relative identity Trinitarianism. I then went on to show how each one of those uh, types of solutions have problems and gave some specific uh, examples of those proposed solutions and why they don't work. So such that all solutions have problems. Then I explained what Mysterianism is and why it doesn't solve the problem and doesn't really even attempt to solve the problem and why what the problems with mysterianism are and then uh last but not least i explained what beale's contradictory theology is and by the fact that it just actually concedes the problem that it is a contradiction and from my perspective if it's a contradiction it's not true uh if people want further resources on this um you can check out my uh, youtube channel uh which is called the muslim metaphysician youtube channel and also for a more detailed um, version of this story, I have two courses which are available on the Sapiens Institute learning platform. You can sign up for free just with your email. And I have one course on the Trinity and another on the Incarnation. And uh, both of them cover this problem and actually more. So uh, you, can, you, you can check those out and if you'd like more information on it. And if anybody has any questions, comments, or concerns on this presentation or things maybe related to it, you can contact me at the email listed below, uh, just the Muslim metaphysician at gmail.com. And I want to thank anyone who's been watching and also uh, Brother Paul for inviting me on the channel and uh, Bassam for having me here and sticking me out, uh, sticking out with me uh, for this interview, for inviting me on and, and giving me the, the platform and the opportunity to explain some of these complex ideas. And I hope that the audience at least at minimum, uh, gain some benefit out of this, inshallah ta'ala. Well, the pleasure is, uh, is all ours, uh, Jake. I mean, you know, jazakallah khairan uh, for that highly informative and intellectually stimulating presentation. I mean, moreover, it was iman boosting. You know, Muslims should get an iman boost, seeing that the greatest competing religion 
to their faith suffers greatly from its adoption of a critical yet incomprehensible doctrine such as the Trinity. And what I liked as you educated us about the historical roots and developments of the problems surrounding the Trinity is that it was Christians themselves who originally proposed that there was something rationally problematic about it, right? And they're human after all. They, they could see through it. And as you proceeded in your presentation, we saw that the problem didn't disappear as a mere historical issue, but remains alive and pertinent today with mm -hmm. the brightest minds of Christendom still striving to resolve the problem to the point of being pressured to even oppose orthodoxy in order to do so, uh, yet still still failing uh, at that. So, you know, Barakallahu Fikum, once again, for your elucidation, I mean, as this was no simple endeavor, uh, I am sure. And, you know, and, and again, I would like to stress to the listeners, especially those of you who are interested in in, in, in having dialogues and discussions with, 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 with Christians uh, to, to really, um, you know, fully grasp and understand, uh, you know, everything that was said in this video, to, in, this, in this presentation to the best of your abilities. Watch it again, take notes, and really try your best to elevate the quality of discourse uh, out there and, and try your best to properly represent uh, you know th this dean in a, in a, a, a first of all most importantly with 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 with, with good character and by uh, you know uh, elevating the the quality of intellectual rational uh, objections that we present uh, uh, against the other side. Um, J Brother Jake, you know, are there any last words that you'd like to say before we bring this 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 discussion to a close? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I got um, I just I got disconnected there. I don't know what happened. It just uh, shut down on me. Uh, but um, uh, yeah. So I basically want to ask whether you had any last words for uh for for, for the listeners before we bring. No, just um, I, I thank everybody for watching. I hope, as I said, that um, there's some type of enjoyment from this and intellectual stimulation. I hope that um, people gain gain some type of benefit from it. And, um, yeah, maybe, uh, <laughs> you know, we can do it again sometime on, on some other issue, but, um, yeah, I think that, um, I'm, I'm attempting at least from my own perspective to try to interact with the Christian tradition as best as I can and to try to steel man it in a way as best as I can in an intellectual fashion, but at the same time explain where I think some of the deficiencies lie and um, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to, as I have in the past, through debates and discussions and interviews with Christians in this very field, um, debates and discuss some of these issues on the highest level and, um, and yeah, see where it goes. But from my perspective, um, I, I don't think that there has been a sufficient solution to the LPT. And I think that's where we are today. Alhamdulillah. Again, Jake and... Uh, thank you so much uh, to, to the listeners for 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 you know pulling through with us and and, and <laughs> listening to this uh, uh, wonderful presentation. And inshallah, we'll see you again on blogging theology. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah.